Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us for episode 163. Uh, we're recording Sunday, February 13th, 2022 at noon Pacific time. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. We're recording a little early to get it in before the Super Bowl. Really? I talk- think we should tell people that this is after the Super Bowl. And, you know, Andrew Luck came out of retirement and threw the game-winning pass. <laughs> You heard it here first. Heard it here I'm first. Sorry, that was lame. Go on, Terry. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say we won't probably talk too much about the Super Bowl because no one is gonna listen to this until after the Super Bowl. But Todd, I did know you wanted to mention some of your prop bets that you have. So uh I'll yes. let you mention them so that when people hear this, they can hear either how brilliant you were or how dumb you were. Well, there's probably some of both. I have quite a few. Um <laughs> First touchdown score, I bet on both Sony Michelle and Joe Mixon. I bet, did Sony Michelle because he was the only one to score a touchdown in the game the last time the Rams were in the Super Bowl, and he is now on the team. Great Just logic. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I have the outcome of the first drive of the game to be a punt, which I, I really like that because everyone's always super conservative <laughs> in the first quarter. I also have um, the first quarter under nine and a half points. I have like a whole bunch of shit for the first quarter, apparently. The first scoring play to be a field goal plus one sixty-five, which obviously that should be that should cash. I mean, they both have great kickers. Uh, the sh- the shortest touchdown of the game, I have over one and a half yards, because like, I mean oh. neither of these teams really pound the ball that much, so I, I feel I feel like there's gonna be a lot of passes in the in the red but, zone. But but one pass interference in the end zone and you're screwed. Yeah, or there could be a loss on the next play and then they score on the next play or something. True. True. I also think that they're going to try to blanket Cooper Cup, so I have Odo Beckham over 64 and a half yards. Uh-huh. I, I, he's been playing really well recently. I have, and then I, I did under 21 and a half points for the Bengals, which was my biggest bet. I, I think that's probably the, the, the safest bet that I have. 21 and a half just seems, I don't see any any way that they get to 24 points or something. And, I, and then I had some other stupid stuff. I bet Aaron Donald to win MVP. I bet. Um, wow. I bet that there will be a scoreless quarter, which I got plus 320 on, which I think the first quarter could easily be scoreless. I bet the exact score of the game to be 20 to 17 at 65 to 1. And, uh, <laughs> Did you I, have I, to I, specify who had 20 and who had 17? Uh, yeah, well, it was it was actually on there. So Rams 20, Bengals okay. 17, because they didn't have 1917 like I predicted last week. And I also have over one and a half field goals in the first half. And uh, wow. there's some other stuff that's not worth mentioning because it's probably not going to hit. But, you know, there's a lot of – I mean, yes, I am a fairly degenerate, but there was a guy on Thursday morning at the casino, which when I was there on my lunch break, that threw down six large on the Suns to, to cover a, on like a random Thursday in February. That is as degenerate as it gets. And at the same time, I was like, should I bet on this? Like, does he know something? And they ended up like <laughs> – they ended up like spanking the the bucks, but I was like, you throw six grand on a single NBA game. Wow, that that is impressive. Can I mention I, some I, of my prop bets too? Oh yeah, go yes. for it. Okay, uh, I basically disagree with almost every prop bet that Todd had. Um, 
<laughs> with the exception of the 1.5 yards. That's a that's a good one uh, for sure to score. You, you, you think it's going to be a high-scoring first quarter? Yes. Well, I Yeah. Uh, that never happens. When was the last time that happened in a Super Bowl? Um, I didn't I think th- Brady scored his first points last year in a, in a first quarter. Yeah, I, I, I like Cooper Cup to score in the first five minutes, but I, that's not one of my official prop bets. I, I, I was more fun. These were lame prop bets. I went uh, California Love as the first song at halftime. I think that's a winner. Um, How are they going to do halftime, by the way? There's four very singular artists that are going to be out Well, there, listen, like... listen. The final song has to be Lose Yourself because the, you're going to bring out uh, Eminem at the end. That's that's easy. I went well, he's over... got to do at least one song with Dre, right? That's true. Yeah, that's why, that's why Lose Yourself is the last song. I went over on the national anthem at 95 seconds. That's going way over. <laughs> 90? Uh, where'd you get that? Dude, it was like 115 seconds. I think the... it opened up at 95. It might have gone up this this week because there was a leak of the singer and she sang it at like 75 seconds. So everybody was kind of panicking. So if you can get it at 95, go for it. And uh, over 1.5 photos of Chris Collinsworth in a Bengals jersey, archival. Are and these actual prop bets? Or are you of course them not. Up? And... Uh, <laughs> Orange Gatorade. I'm sure Gatorade is a bet so- somewhere, but I like Orange Gatorade. Well, Orange was the second favorite. Red was the 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 favorite at like two to one. Orange was like plus three fifty. But I Orange saw, has hit like has been like six of the last thirteen or something. So I saw a uh, a Super Bowl drinking game, and uh, that started with "Take a shot every time you hear Chris Collinsworth say." Now here's a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> be like Tony Romo with "Here we go, here we go, Jim." Yeah, yeah. the 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 one prop bet I was thinking of betting, but I I, I still might was uh uh Tyler Boyd and Van Jefferson combined over zero point five touchdowns. Okay, That's I don't confusing. think there's going to be a lot of touchdowns, so I don't. So, know like, if so, I, so you're, ba- what, you're what betting that either that? Tyler Boyd or Van Jefferson get a touchdown. It was like plus two thirty. That might not be bad. I like. I also like Todd's Aaron Donald bet because if it's a low scoring, it could, that could be either a low scoring game or a blowout that the Rams win. And let's say Stafford throws two picks. I so I, I'm with you on the Aaron Donald pick, Todd. The, the rest of them were crap, though. I did put my obligatory $5 bet on the Bengals plus four, though. It's four and a half again now. Is it four and a half? Which I'm not really sure how. Like, Mattress Matt keeps throwing down, you know, $5 million, you know, every few days. If the, if the Bengals win, how many, what's the over-under on commercials Joe Burrow stars in over the <coughs> next year? Six and a half? Or is it more or less than, than the commercials that Baker Mayfield stars in? That's the real question. Oh, less than that. Yeah, yeah, Baker will still have have the crown. Um, did you hear the Cincinnati mayor wanted to bet the mayor of L.A. that if uh, the Bengals won, L.A. would have to officially change their name to Los Angeles? Ah, nice. Yeah. Will the, Will the Cincinnati uh, owner, if they win the Super Bowl, say, you know, we're on to Cincinnati at the podium <laughs> with <laughs> Goodell? Yes, he better. That'd be amazing. Uh, all right. Well, you can hear how uh, I'm sure you guys are laughing at us because everything that we just said is completely wrong from how the game actually went. But uh, yeah. Anyways, let's get into this. Uh, Todd, what are you drinking? 
from the Georgetown Brewery, I am drinking the Johnny Utah Pale Ale, which is the name of, I think, Keanu Reeves' character in Point Break. I think you're right, so, yeah. I don't think I've ever had this one, but it's pretty good. Nice. It's kind of it's, it's tight. Tight, tight. Tight, tight, tight. All right. Zach, what do you got? Uh, I was I was uh, a refugee from my homeland today. I was not expecting this, so unfortunately, I have to go with water. But uh, uh, had I not fled uh, my homeland, I would have I would be enjoying some nice uh, mixed uh, potent potables. Well, I'm sure you'll get plenty of those once the game starts. So, hopefully, yeah. Uh, I went to the brewery, and uh, I this is from Hop Capital in Yakima, which is now like partnered with Ridgewalker. Um, this is their zero to hero strawberry pineapple hazy IPA. And it's nice. It, it's not as hazy as most hazies are. And but but it's a, it's got a little bit of a brighter taste to it than a lot of hazies. So is Cooper Cup from eastern Washington from Yakima? I think he was born in Yakima, yeah. He's the second most famous Yakima resident after Matt Gertson. Of course. Shout out Matt Gertzen. <clears throat> Wherever you are. I'm sure he's rooting for Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup was his kind of player. Yakima. I, I, I think so. Or or would he be I think he might be rooting for the Bengals, though, because as a as a Vikings fan, could he root for Matt Stafford? Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. This is this is riveting, riveting uh yeah. audio right now. Let's let's get into this. Before we get into like all our normal stuff. It feels like an eternity ago, but the Oscar nominations came out this last week. I know Todd wrote up his his reaction article, uh, but I thought we should just throw out some initial thoughts, some initial feelings on what happened with the Oscar nominations. Um, cool moments, moments where hat left us scratching our heads. Um, is there a bigger head-scratching moment on nomination morning than... A guy who can't pronounce anybody's name. Well, that, that, yes. But uh, Dune getting 10 nominations and one of them isn't the director? I mean, picture yeah, that, every tech rough. and you don't get director? Well, you know, that, kind of that has itself. ever happened before, right? Like that, <laughs> I mean, I know that like, well, didn't Apollo 13 don't they got like 11 nominations, but not How many did Apollo 13 get? Without Ron Howard. That had to be 10, right? At least. I'll, I'll oh, check. no. There's only two acting nominations. And I don't think it got every tech. Did it went like art direction. And... I'm checking. I'm looking this up. It won two. Know that. Uh, let's see here. Nine. Nine nominations. Nine nominations. So, so is Dune the first double-digit nominee without a director? That's the question. I would right? think so. Hmm. I I don't know about that, but I thought I thought my favorite part of uh, of Oscar morning was my plus thirty five hundred bet that Yak would get best documentary. I cashed that in, and international, uh, you know, or excuse me, oh international, excuse me. Wrong I category. never heard you mention that because I've never even heard of that movie. I'm I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, I can we can we do a deep dive of Yak at some point or come to the stable of Yak? I, I think we I think we need to. I, I heard it is available. So I heard that they tried to submit that movie last year, but like Bhutan's like film organization wasn't established enough to submit a movie. 
So they had to wait another year and organize their country's film institute or organization or whatever, and then they were able to submit this year. That's ridiculous. Which, which tells me it's pretty good. I don't know. I mean, apparently it's better than The Rescue, which was my number one movie of The know, Rescue was Yak was international. Rescue oh, was I'm documentary. Confusing it. But, re but Rescue hero. did get snubbed pretty big time. Everyone thought it was going to be Summer of Soul that was going to get the the obligatory frontrunner snub, but it was the rescue. And did Flea just get those three nominations just so they could say, just so they could have a novelty like that, that international documentary and animated? Well, yeah, but I mean, what pisses me off about that is that Waltz with Bashir is a much better movie, and that only got nominated for Best Foreign Film, not even Best Animation, which, I mean, Flea's an animation is low-key kind of garbage. Like, it, it, it looks really bad, but it still is getting nominated for that. And it's not a documentary. They said, like, Walsh of Bashir wasn't eligible because it didn't actually have any footage in it. So, like, how is Flea any different than that? They, they, they really have changed a lot in the last, like, 15 yeah. years. Yeah, Lun Lunana Yak in the Classroom is available on Amazon, by the way, but it costs money. Oh, okay. Um, I think Best it, Original Song is the most, like, star-studded, like, group of nominees I've ever seen. Like, yeah, they're, they're all big good. names. And they yeah, you got you got Van Morrison, I, Beyonce, Lemon, Miranda, still alive. Billie Eilish, and Diane Warren. Yeah, and at the expense of Kid Cudi and Ariana Grande, who easily could have gotten in there too. Was I the only one cheering that House of Gucci was shut out except for a makeup nomination? Well, I mean, like, it was one no, of the worst movies of the year. We all agreed on that. I so know. I no Leto. Happy. <laughs> no Gaga. Not even costumes. I mean, you made a movie about fashion and you couldn't get a costume nomination. I know, even Cruella did. I know. All, all, all you got was you got some, some props for, for making Jared Leto look like Richard Kind. Yeah, that's true. I think that the Oscars are realizing that Ridley Scott sucks. <laughs> they snubbed his Just other now. movie completely, too. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, if you want some more thoughts, Todd did put a, a huge article out there going through every category, how he did in his predictions and uh, the coolest nomination for coolest first time nominees and the worst snubs. Um, what was your what was your number one coolest not, uh, first time nominee, Todd? I, um, I think it, it was Jesse Plemons. Yeah, had to be mm, like because I mean, him and Lakeith were like my two favorite character actors and now back-to-back -back years they get in like and i called that one i predicted that one well i predicted kristen stewart and you guys didn't <laughs> and she was definitely on my list too. i predicted kristen stewart too yeah um, i i love todd that you predicted judy dench in in october and yeah. then and well, then it was, was like my, that i was looking at my january predictions and i had her on there then too like uh, i was like number seven or something yeah you each of us got what well, I got Penelope Cruz. I, I was I was gonna guarantee that. And then Adam got uh did not get Cooper Hoffman, sadly, but did call Nightmare Alley for and JK Simmons. And JK Simmons, yeah. Well, Impressive. two of my Tommy Lee Jones picks actually got nominated. I don't think any of them have ever been nominated before. And I got two and he got of in them. two of them. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> impressive. That was impressive. Not Marion Cotillard, though. No. Snub. No. There was no yeah, I don't know what I would have done there to actually have a shot make it make sense all right well let's move on and uh talk about the movies we watched this week uh let's start with zach what'd you watch this week 
All right, I watched. Uh, okay, so um, uh, after a uh, recent podcast with Quentin Tarantino, where he talked about uh, the final films of various directors, he went on a rant about Richard Brooks and how he thinks <laughs> Richard Brooks is an overrated director. Now, I haven't seen a lot of Richard Brooks movies, but I am a fan of In Cold Blood. I watched a Richard Brooks movie this week. It was not his final film, which I really, really, really want to see. Um, and we even talked about maybe doing that's just not available anywhere. It's called Fever Pitch. It's apparently a horrible movie about gambling with Ryan O'Neill. But uh, the movie I did watch this week was Richard Brooks's 1977 film, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is an oh. interesting movie because it is not available anywhere. It's like one of those like notoriously difficult to find movies that I think there's an issue with copyright. So you can't really find it on DVD anywhere. It was randomly on TCM. So I made sure to record it. And uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar was nominated for two Oscars in 1977, um, and uh, one of which was for Best Supporting Actress, Tuesday Wheeled. But the movie stars Diane Keaton. It was, her, it was Diane Keaton's other movie that year, um, other than Annie Hall. And uh, she plays a uh, teacher for the deaf in New York City, and her name is Teresa. And she is a loyal and dedicated teacher, but during the day, but at night, she kind of goes out to the bars and drinks and is fairly promiscuous and engages in some risky activities. And I think in 1977, this movie was trying to make the statement that uh, it's not just that a woman can is either or. It's not that she's a Madonna or a whore. Um, it's not that she is either virtuous or non-virtuous, but that a woman can be both. I think the movie was sort of a lightning rod. It was based on a real incident, and that was later novelized. And uh, I have to say it was pretty interesting. It, it, it's very much a 1970s movie. There's definitely some funky stuff going on with some disco and lots of drugs and lots of kind of gratuitous uh, shots that kind of are very, like, in your face. And I have to say, I agree with Richard Brooks, or excuse me, with Tarantino's assessment that Richard Brooks was not a particularly great director. I think in the hands of a different director, maybe like a Sidney Lumet or even like a Francis Ford Coppola, this could have been a really uh, awesome movie. As it is, it's a two and a half star movie. It's more of a curiosity than anything else. Um, it has an early appearance by Richard Gere, pre-American Gigolo, but he's kind of in, in a similar vein. And this movie has a pretty shocking climax that actually is pretty gruesome for 1977 standards. Um, but uh, it's it, it's worth checking out. It, it definitely a, a funky 70s vibe to it. Um, I really want to see the other Richard Brooks movie, though, uh, uh, a Fever Pitch. But uh, this this was a good substitute. And Richard Brooks, may, maybe not as bad as Tarantino says, but maybe also kind of so bad he's good. I don't know. Very nice. Very nice. I've not seen that. Todd, have you? I have not. Yeah, it's not available anywhere. I don't know anybody who's seen it. So it's, uh, you know, I'm glad TCM ran it. But uh, it's one of those strange movies that actually had some notoriety, but is nowhere to be found. I, I love TCM for stuff like that. All right. Uh, my, I'll go next. My Oscar watch for this week. I, I have a few things I want to talk about, but let's start with the Oscar watch. Let's see if you guys can get it. It is from 20 years ago. Best foreign film nominee from Finland, directed probably by the greatest Finnish director of all time. And I'm saying that because I've actually heard of his name before, and he's Finnish. The Man Without a Past? It's The Man Without a Past, yep, by Aki Kurismaki. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to spend too much time on The Man Without a Past, because honestly, I thought it was kind of boring. And um, it was... It, everything I saw about it, like, all the reviews are like, oh, this movie is, like, deadpan comedy, hilarious. 
it it's not it, it's a movie about a guy who gets beaten up and left for dead and actually dies and then uh wakes up but he doesn't remember who he is and so he hangs out with people not knowing who he is and that's the that's the movie it looks like it was shot in like the 70s but it's a 2002 movie which is kind of interesting um but yeah it was not uh, one and a half stars it was kind of it was just boring then nothing happened and and it wasn't like it was one of those nothing happened and it feels really lived in nothing happened and nothing was interesting either so um maybe he's an acquired taste but i didn't like the movie but what i do want to report on what i do want to actually talk about is um we're we, we're doing a come to the stable review but i still did my double feature friday night at the movies and i want to talk about my double feature because it was it was quite the humdinger here. Uh, it started with Moonfall. And I just got to talk about this a little bit here. So Moonfall, the new movie from Roland Emmerich. Patrick Wilson, Halle Berry, and John Bradley. You know, Samuel Tarley himself from Game of Thrones. Michael Pena pops up. Um, there, Yeah, it, it's an interesting cast. Donald Sutherland has like a two-minute scene. This movie is horrible um <laughs> it the the it's one of those where it's a disaster movie and, and in some parts it's if don't look up was played as a disaster movie instead of a political satire there, there's a certain element of that to it but at the same time there's just way too much disbelief that needs to be suspended for you to be able to to follow the plot basically the plot is aliens hijack the moon and use it to attack and destroy earth and the only ones that can stop it are a conspiracy theorist uh a washed up uh astronaut who's now a drunk and his former partner that just happens to be the head of nasa um that's the movie and it gets weirder if you can believe it so one and a half stars it kind of it looked cool, but my word, where did this movie go? I have no idea. Then the second movie I watched was Death on the Nile, and we talked we talked about maybe seeing this one, but then we decided not to, and we we're doing this instead. But Death on the Nile is actually a lot of fun. Uh, I saw some people saying that, you know, after Knives Out, it's really hard to do a good murder mystery anymore, which I, I there is some validity to. But Death on the Nile, I liked it better than Murder on the Orient Express. Kenneth Branagh's last outing is. Um, it's got a star-studded cast, uh, but some unexpected standouts from the cast uh, from, let's see here, where are the names? Um, I, I should have had it here, ready to go. Um, Kenneth Braun is great as always, but the standouts uh, are uh, Russell Brand, who I didn't even realize was in the movie, and if you don't pay that close attention, you won't even know he's in the movie because he looks nothing like who how he actually looks. And then uh oh where is her name emma mackey uh who plays jacqueline de belfort she like steals every scene she's in um and is a like she's in many scenes with gal gadot and she steals the scene and steals the attention away from gal gadot which is impressive but she's really good um there there's a lot of problems with with uh like the backstory of this movie and some of the actors in the movie like it's army hammer is in it and that's part of the reasons why it was delayed for so long i i don't really care about that army hammer is as horrible as ever though 
um, because he's just wooden and awkward as he always is. Anyways, three stars. I really liked it. Um, it, it, it's a good story. It's a good, um, it's got some good twists and turns to it. And, uh, and yeah, Brana really is good at this role and he should keep doing it. So three stars for death on the Nile, one and a half for moonfall and one and a half for man without a past. I talked for way too long. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Death on the Nile would have been a good double feature with Titanic, but, uh, oh, yeah. I guess, I guess we didn't have the foresight. Yeah, that that would have been good. That would have been good. Todd, what'd you watch? Uh, so I'm still working through my screeners. I'm almost done though. Uh, but one of them I watched that I really liked is Roshan Sethi's movie called Seven Days, which stars Karan Sony, who is actually the co-writer of the movie with Sethi, and um, and he plays Robbie, and Geraldine Viswanathan plays Rita, and they are like two single indians who have an arranged date because their parents are really traditional and conservative and they um uh find each other online and make sure they're going on a date and they go out right before the pandemic starts but then right when you know the nba shut down and everything went to hell like they head back to her place and they are stuck sheltering in place with each other and so robbie is like like really careful and a germaphobe and rita's more of like a free spirit they're really opposites but they're sort of adorable together but, and honestly, it seemed originally like some sort of Mindy Kaling wannabe thing, which it, like the characters are insufferably awkward, uh, which is appealing when done right. But Rita, at one point, she busts out a beer for breakfast. And after that, everything shifts. And it's kind of brilliant after that. It's it's produced by Mark Duplass, and it kind of feels like one of his movies mixed with like maybe like a sweeter Apatow kind of thing. But... Uh, it, it was one of the biggest surprises I've had watching the the these Spirit Award screeners. Uh, like it, it's similar to a movie I watched last year called Straight Up, which I'm sure again won't win anything. Like Seven Days has 76 votes on IMDb, but uh, it's pretty great. I, I don't know how. I mean, the film independent members are like we're voting right now. I don't know if they don't use IMDb or they're going to fraudulently vote on this category because uh, 76 votes is so such a tiny number. But uh, Geraldine Viswanathan is is fantastic. Like she was. She was in this movie called The Broken Hearts Gallery that I liked from last year. She's also one of the kids in Blockers. But she has this, like, sassiness and sarcasm that really makes that character pop. And I think she's great. Officially, it's a 2022 movie. It doesn't really have a release date yet. But uh, it's going to get released at some point this year. So I'm sure it'll be at the top of my 2022 list for quite a while. It's uh, definitely the best thing I've seen that's built around the pandemic. Because most other things are so, like, used as a gimmick. But this actually makes it work. And I'm giving it three and a half stars. Nice. Wow. Is that your number one movie of 2022 so far? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just just over Jackass. Very nice. Very nice. Cool. All right. And you said you have a few more screeners to go? Yeah, I think I have like three more movies I have to watch. Nice. And voting is going on like until like the 22nd, I think, or something. So got a little bit of time. And then so Adam it- and I will do our podcast about that. So with your screeners, do they like self-destruct after you watch them? Or no, they're all they're all just on a it's all on a page with uh, links. But uh, I think last year it took like a month for them to actually take that page down. So I'll have access to them for a little while. <coughs> very nice, very nice. Okay. Well, let's get into our featured review this week. And like I said, we're doing something a little different. Uh, we didn't watch a new movie, but we did. This is one of our favorite things that we do. We are doing a come to the stable review. 
Um, which is from the same a, year as Come to the Stable. With from the same year as Come to the Stable, yeah. We go back and we find a random old movie that ne- none of us have seen or remember seeing in this case. And uh and we talk about and we and we review it. We talk we watch it, we review it, and we've had some really fun ones in the past, and it all started with watching Come to the Stable. And we love that movie unexpectedly, so we decided to keep going. So today we are talking about Adam's Rib from 1949. It came up on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and we had this little debate about whether it was a courtroom drama or a rom-com. And uh, and so we're like, well, we need to watch this and actually decide because it's a courtroom movie, but it was on the AFI rom-com list. So we're like, okay, we got we got to figure this out. So I'm going to go first and talking about this. Uh, and my my deduction is it's neither. It's not a rom-com and it's it's funny, but it, it's not what you would consider a rom-com, but it's not a drama either. It's a comedy about a married couple. That's not necessarily what you would consider a rom-com. Anyways, it stars Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn in one of the many movies that they did together. And they're both lawyers. Spencer Tracy works... Um, as a as a prosecutor, uh, Catherine Hepburn is a is a lawyer that goes out of her way to take on a case to defend a woman who is being uh, who is uh, being accused of trying to kill her husband. Uh, she found him and his mistress together, took a gun, fired a couple rounds. Um, I think actually shot him. Yeah, actually shot him. And so he she's trying to to get her off and using the, if this was a man, he would not be considered, this would not be a, a, a case. And it, it, it's kind of brilliantly crafted in how it gives kind of a role reversal in, in the, in the marriage, especially for the forties where you have Catherine Hepburn really kind of being the one that's driving everything. And Spencer Tracy kind of floundering and, and following his wife's lead and how this uh, whole thing is going. Um, their, their marriage is tested through, through the, through the trial, um, which is, is heated at times. At times it's comical and almost circus like. Uh, and uh, it, it is, it, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this movie. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Uh, it, it was, it was kooky. It was goofy. It was fun, but also it had some really good points. Uh, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy are, are great as always. I still hold to the fact that Spencer Tracy should have played Todd, our grandfather in a movie. Uh, he should have been big Al. Like yeah. if anyone was going to play big Al in a movie, it'd be Spencer Tracy. Um, but yeah, three and a half stars, ton of fun, a great, great movie, uh, available on HBO max, by the way, too. So, Todd, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I like it too. I think my favorite part was Judy Holiday. Like, I think she's she's always amazing, but like here, her like innocent, childish voice like really works with the obliviousness of her oh, yeah, character. Yeah. Like, she, she's great. But yeah, Hepburn and Tracy are are like their banter is like really realistic and palpable. It's like adorably silly watching together. And oddly enough, I felt like Ruth Gordon co-wrote this movie. I could I could feel Ruth Gordon in this movie. There's like little jabs that are so like incredibly like feminist in here, which is interesting because like movies now are, don't even make it like that blatant that they're that they're trying to be a feminist movie, but this definitely is. There's some weird things like the title cards are really strange. I'm not really sure why they were doing that. And the end is is kind of an odd note that to end on, but I kind of like it. 
mean, the courtroom scenes have a flow which, uh, to them that makes me feel like my cousin Vinny was actually like modeled after this movie. Like the fights they have outside the court, the playfulness in the court, like the the constant colorful dim-witted witnesses. Like I, I feel I felt like I was watching some version of my cousin Vinny, and which also brings like the one flaw in the movie is like I feel like they make the story so insignificant and corny that's how they treat the material but then like there's these like scenes that are supposed to be rousing and sparking emotion i'm not really sure what they were going for because like in my cousin Vinny, it's like they know that that it's kind of ridiculous it's like a big show but here it's like they actually were trying to make like a a time to kill type point you know in the court i i thought of but i mean it, it kind of worked but i mean it was entertaining but it just seemed like i was getting a lecture from miss bliss or something you know i don't know <laughs> The, the movie is slight, but it is definitely fun. And I'm giving it three stars and a little bit below you, but I, I do like it. Nice. Now, Zach, you said you had seen this at one point. Yes. You didn't remember seeing it. Did you get a chance to watch it? Yes, I did. Okay. Okay. So what'd you think? So I think uh, I, probably about 10 years ago, I watched it. Uh, and I think I gave it three stars, probably more out of respect uh, because I honestly did not remember watching it, but I, I did see it on my list um, and I did go back and rewatch it this week. And I got to say, I, I was not overly impressed with it. Uh, I thought it was, I mean, maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset. Maybe I wasn't in, in the mood, but uh, I didn't find their banter particularly interesting. I agree with Todd that the, the, the case itself is so slight and so ridiculous that it almost undermines any sort of impact that the characters have. Uh, it, and, and then the, the, the whole uh, legal strategies that they use, and you know, you don't watch this movie to analyze their legal strategies, but it's just so ridiculous. I mean, how can you, how, first of all, how can you believe that these two people are, are respected high profile lawyers when they sink to the sort of antics that they, that they do in court? Um, this movie absolutely has a ax to grind about um, di discrepancies in gender dynamics, but I feel like it's more relevant to the 1940s than it is today. Basically, Catherine Hepburn's argument is uh, a philandering man is, uh, is acceptable in society, whereas a philandering woman is not. And I feel like that's sort of an argument in favor of benevolent sexism. Um, but, you know, again, I don't think this movie really has anything significant or important to say about gender. I feel like it's all just sort of a, a, a an excuse to have, at least in theory, fun banter and fun sort of um, antics between the two characters. But it's not really that fun. Uh, the, to me, it, the movie dragged on. Wasn't it, 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 I've always found this way about Cucor. I guess the way Tarantino finds Brooks, I find Cucor. I, I, Cucor's movies are never visually interesting. I mean, this is basically like a staged play. I mean, there's there's no camera movement. The sets are really flat and uh, not dynamic at all. This movie goes on way too long. It has an aftermath or a coda at the end that is dreadfully unfunny. There's a song in it, as you would expect in a 40s movie like this. Uh, it just, to me, it, it, it not impressive at all. I, I don't think, I, I think the 1940s, there were some movies in the forties that really said something about the world that, uh, that, that the movie was set. I think about movies like the lost weekend or, um, not gentlemen's agreement, but the other movie that was about anti-Semitism. I think there were some movies that had more of a hard edge. And I think this movie could have had a hard edge had it taken its, its material more seriously. I think it's a, a, a lost opportunity. And I, I think Hepburn and Tracy are great actors, but this was not their finest hour. And I'm shocked that this movie ranks as high as it does on those AFI lists. That's ridiculous. I, I couldn't find one moment in this movie that I thought was funny. 
I didn't even I didn't I didn't smile. To me, to me, this was this was a chore to get through. So I, I gave it two stars. Well, it's definitely more of a horror movie than a rom com. <laughs> I don't I don't think there's anything romantic about this movie. No. no. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's not it's not a courtroom drama, but it's not a rom com either. No. Uh, the song got stuck what? in my head for better or for worse. That was probably the most <laughs> notable thing about it. Oh, another thing I want to say about it too is uh it wasn't until the end when I was looking at the credits that I noticed that the mistress was played by Jean Hagen from Singing in the Rain, which made me love her performance in Singing in the Rain that much more. However, while she was on the witness stand talking, I was like, she kind of sounds like that annoying girl from Singing in the Rain. And it turns out it was her. So I thought that was kind of fun. I did not catch that. You didn't catch that? Yeah, the mistress was Jean Hagen. Anyways. All right, well, two stars from Zach, three stars from Todd, three and a half from me. Like I said, it's on HBO Max. It's kind of it's considered a classic in a lot of ways, and so uh, you can check it out there and uh, see what you think for yourself. All right, let's get into what we're really here for. It is Deep Dive Week, and our deep dive this week is one of the biggest movies of all time. Uh, celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, and it, it's—I think it's important that we're doing it this uh, this week after Oscar nominations came out. It's one of the greatest um, Oscar triumphs of uh, of recent memory, as it won. Let's see here: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eleven. eight, nine, ten, eleven Oscars 25 years ago. It's Titanic. Is this it? Don't you believe it, Rose? Rose! Don't you understand? The water is freezing and there aren't enough boats. Half the people on the ship are going to die. Not the better half. What are we doing, Mommy? When I finish putting first-class people on the boats, they'll be starting with us. The larger-than-life James Cameron film. Um, we're gonna we're gonna go through this. We're gonna talk all things Titanic. Uh, even some stuff you probably didn't even want to know about Titanic. We're gonna still talk about it. But first, we have some trivia, and Todd is hosting trivia here. So, Todd, take it away. Uh, so I guess I'll start with Zach, even though he said he could do this in his sleep. So, oh, but Terry chose it, so you, so you can't right. go away. I'm going away. Todd, okay. did you did you laugh at all at Adam's rib? I found myself trying to not fall asleep. You really thought there was anything there, funny? There were in few, that? I love Judy Holiday. I, I thought I thought her character was really. I funny. thought it was interesting watching her because you could see why Melanie Griffith was recast as her role in in the '90s version of Born Yesterday, but right. that doesn't mean the movie's good. Sorry. I don't know. I mean, I, hey, I mean, I didn't love it as much as Terry, but yeah, I, I I did actually enjoy it, and I saw Adam. Adam told me that he really liked it too. But anyway, trivia: we have eleven questions for a total of eighteen points. And I don't know, this is not an easy one to come up with questions for, so we'll see how this goes. Number one, how many weeks in a row was it? Num was Titanic number one at the box office? Uh, well, it was like from uh, like late December, like December 24th through like April 2nd. So I will say, what's that, 13? 14. That's the correct oh. answer. Okay. That's pretty close. Uh, Maybe I'll do a closer. Who's closer than? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Um. What is the first word in the movie? 
I should always be prepared for these, but I'm not. Um, we haven't done one of these in a while. <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, it, it's not spoken for a long time. It's got to be in that submarine. I have no clue. Is it uh, stop? Something like that. Uh, no, ironically, the first word is 13. Okay. <laughs> Which is your answer for the last question. Nice. Yeah, he's, he's like saying 13, 13 uh, feet until like uh, impact or something. Very uh, memorable. What is the drone called that is used to explore the ship underwater? Well, isn't that uh, Snoop Vision? Okay, yeah, that's one of the two things I wrote down. That That's what it shows on his hat, but on the, the side of the actual drone, it says Duncan, like Dunkin' Donuts, like that. Which, I mean, so I assumed that's what it was called, but then it kept saying Snoop Vision. So I, I will give you the point. All right. What symbol is on Lewis's t-shirt when they meet Rose? Uh, I had a, a lot of thoughts about this. Well, the, he wears several t-shirts in the movie. Uh, are you talking about the Watchmen t-shirt? Yes. Okay. The Watchmen t-shirt, yes. Uh, what I may have a conspiracy is... theory about this later, but okay. <laughs> what, what Obviously state the most interesting from? character in the movie. What state is Jack from? Wisconsin. Chippewa Falls. As opposed to the Boston Dawsons. Why does Rose claim to be hanging over the rail? Uh, she was looking at the pro 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 propeller. Exactly. That is correct. Women in machinery um, don't mix. That, you know, Adam's rib probably would have something to say about that, too. How much money was Hockley going to pay Jack for rescuing Rose? Uh, a 20? Will a 20 do it? That's correct. How many, people were, are, how many people were rescued the next morning? Uh, you mean, like, from in the water? Yeah. Uh, six including Rose. Correct. Uh, complete the quote. Water that, that cold hits you like a thousand blank. Knives. That's correct. And you are killing it. Yep. In my sleep, man. <laughs> uh, okay, so these are don't necessarily have to do with the actual plot of the movie. Thing. Okay, what six AFI oh, so lists this, this, this is where I could get messed was up. Was this movie voted in onto? Okay. I mean, there are only like eleven lists, which I realized after this. So they, it was on six of them. Well, so if I if I miss one, is that it? Uh, no, you could say six. Okay. Uh, romance romances. Yeah, the uh, passions. That, that was the what it was okay. called. Yeah. Uh, top one hundred. Yes, it was on the top one hundred, the second version because the first version came out like that year. Um, uh, songs, songs is correct. Um, was there one about epics? Yeah, uh, thrills, thrills. Yeah. Uh, and then two more. Uh, what well, are you talking about? Both both versions of the one hundred top one hundred list. Does that count? Uh, no, it was not on the first version. Okay, because it was, it came out like that year. So that's all yeah, I got. Well, I I don't know the other two. Okay, well, it actually, so Thrills is actually a separate thing. It did have the Epic's Top 10. That was one of, that was on. The 100 Years, 100 Thrills, it was on. And the other one was uh, Quotes. Oh, okay. It had the number 100 quote, which was, uh, I'm king of the world. And this one should be pretty easy. Titanic lost the Oscar for Best Actress, Supporting Actress, and Best Makeup. Who won the, in those categories? Uh, well, uh, Helen Hunt in As Good As It Gets, Supporting Actress right. that, that year was Kim Basinger in LA Confidential and makeup that is a tough one I think it was Men in Black 
That is correct. All right. Damn, you got 14 out of 18. That is uh, that is pretty uh, uh, impressive. All right. Terry. Yeah. Okay. We have 11 questions worth 18 points. Okay. Do you want to know what Zach got? Sure. He got 14. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Sobriety makes all the difference. <laughs> okay. How many weeks in a row was Titanic number one at the box office? 10? Uh, no, Zach actually gets another point for that. It was 14. He said 13. So, yeah, you, you're going to have to dig this up out of the hole. Uh, no, uh, number two, what is the first word in the movie? I'm going to say okay. It was 13. 13. So it's like, like it, it's it's not even like a, it's like off camera. It's like over radio. It's like 13 feet until they hit the boat or something. Uh, okay, all right. All right. I'd, I thought, be impressed I thought... if, I'd be impressed if James Cameron knew the answer to that question. Like, I, that I knew it was possible. I knew it was over the radio. And so I was saying, well, the, I was thinking well, it was that's like. That's the only reason I wrote it down because it was like a good, okay, like, 13 feet. I got. Movie, and I was like, so we haven't had a word yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Next question. What is the drone called that is used to explore the ship underwater? Um. There are two different names. One of them is on the drone, and one of them is shown other elsewhere. I forget. Uh, so on Lewis's hat, it says Snoop Vision, and I think that's Gosh. one of the names. And then Duncan is on the side of, on the side of the drone. What symbol is on Lewis's T-shirt when they meet Rose? Oh. Oh boy. This is like smiley face, right? Yeah, but be more specific. It, is it? Is, is it like the the Watchman smiley face with like that is blood? Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> uh, what state is Jack from? Uh, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. That that is a city in yes, not, I guess. Um, the Chippewa why, Falls, Wisconsin. Why does Rose claim to be hanging over the rail? Uh, she wanted to look at the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, pr propeller, propeller, propellers, propellers. That word. And you both did that very well. Um, <laughs> we both said Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, too. Oh yeah. <laughs> how much does Hockley want to pay Jack for rescuing Rose? Twenty bucks. That's correct. Uh, finish the quote. Water that cold hits you like a thousand blank. Um thousand stabbing needles uh, it was knives but yeah! uh, I was gonna say knives I second guess myself dang it how many people were rescued the next morning from the water five six six <laughs> what six AFI list was this movie voted onto um top 100 that's correct the second one um just the second one. Okay. Um, okay. Um, courtroom drama. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, oh, uh, Tears? That's not correct. Then like, they, they, they do like like the 100 Years well, Under Tears or something like that? No. Uh, cheers. Or cheer, but they did Tears, cheers. too, I thought. No, that was no, one was cheers I did. Cheers and I think. Oh, that was what you did. Yeah, okay. there, was oh. no, there was no tears. And there Can was, you get a half point for getting on Todd's list? It's impressive. <laughs> it was not the cheers was not the one either. Uh, um, you have like three more guesses. Gosh, I can't even remember all the different categories they had. Um, there were only like uh, I think there were like eleven. So I mean, it got in like over half the list. So you just throw them out. I mean, you chose one of the only ones that it wasn't on. Well, it's not in rom-com. Um, yeah, that was one of the top ten ones. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, because it was 100 years, 100... Um, yeah. What was the... Was there, like, an epics one? There, that, I, that was they, an uh... epic top ten. Yes, that was one of them. Oh, okay, okay. Um... And they didn't have any. Okay, hmm. uh, love stories. That's correct. It was called Passions. Man. Top one hundred epics, Passions, and I'm gonna call it there. Uh, it was yeah. on hundred years, hundred thrills. It was on the top one hundred quotes, and it was on the top one hundred songs. I forgot there was a songs one. I was gonna say that. Okay, now Titanic lost three Oscars. Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Makeup. What won in those categories? <laughs> Zach actually got all three. 97. So, Helen Hunt? No, that was 98. Or was that, that 97? Was correct. That was correct, okay. Um, <clears throat> supporting Actress... would have been ah oh, gosh um you may have wanted to deep dive this movie this week oh geez that's like eight and a half gosh i was oh, it doesn't uh, matter. I, he's, he's he's down by yeah, yeah. Six kim points basinger point left. and then makeup you said was the other one it lost yeah um nutty professor that's not the right year, guess. but it was Men in Black. Oh. So Zach wins 15 to 9, which is questionable whether Terry actually got 9. But so Zach is the master, uh, but Terry chose the category. So take it away, Terry. Yeah, I'm the one that picked this one. Uh, I was just looking at this. So it is number 27 on my top 100. It is number 34 on Zach's top 100. Which puts it at number 44 all time on our website. Um, I had to go look because we only posted the top 25. Uh, yeah, this movie is one of those movies that you're like always told is amazing. And I don't remember when I watched it for the first time. I'm pretty sure it was on the two, two VHS edition, though. Oh yeah, and did that have a Sergeant Bilko preview? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, so. I don't remember. Um, 
but it's one of those movies that it gets because of its huge popularity. I mean, it was number one all time box office for a long, long time. But because of that huge popularity, it, it gets like ridiculed and mocked and roasted when the fact of the matter is this movie is a brilliant movie. Um, and the, the special effects are amazing and still hold up and watching it just this week that that holds up amazingly. Um, a brilliant performances. It, it's, it's just a great, great movie. My favorite experience watching this movie was, um, I guess it was probably what, 10 years ago now when it came out in 3d and uh yeah. and my wife and i went and watched it in the in the movie theater in 3d and we were the only two in the theater and so we had this huge theater to ourselves watching titanic in 3d and it was the first time i'd seen it on the big screen and it was totally worth it because this is one of those spectacles that you can enjoy the intimacy of of scenes at, at home you can enjoy the the larger than life uh on the big screen and it's just it's just great. It, it's it's great. Now, Zach, I know you're a huge fan of this movie, too. Yeah, I did not see this movie in 1997 uh, in the theaters because I remember thinking it was like a girl's movie, you know, and 10-year-old <laughs> Zach, I wanted to be uh, more more suave than that. Uh, but uh, deep down, secretly, I, I, I knew I loved this movie. I, I think I saw it maybe on cable or maybe we just rented the two. Shout out to to dual VHS movies. I mean, you know, Gandhi, JFK, not a whole lot of them, but, you know, in its prime, Titanic had to be the number one selling two VHS movie. Um, I did, like Terry, see this movie in IMAX 3D back in uh, 2012. I saw it with a double feature with The Hunger Games. And uh, wow. I remember being super impressed by I, I because I thought the Hunger Games was going to suck. I thought that was going to be the the uh, what what do you call that the the card the title card no the what what's the boxing term like you know the 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 the, the, the undercard undercard. undercard yeah I thought Hunger Games would be Hunger but I, I love the Hunger Games too but uh, I remember watching it in 2012 that was a great theatrical experience that was the first time I had ever noticed that the pictures at uh, the end of the movie that old Rose brings on the submarine are pictures of the things that young Rose talks about with Leo, that she was on the horse and went to uh, the, the, the uh, roller coaster. Um, and I'd never noticed that before. Um, but uh, yes, I love this movie deeply. Um, I thought it, it's kind of interesting to bring this movie up now because according to Box Office Mojo, it is, it is now the third highest grossing movie of all time. I thought this was maybe going to be a, ta- a question that Todd asked. And what's interesting is Spider-Man No Way Home is number six. And there is a a scenario where they're not that far apart. Spider-Man No Way Home may earn more money than Titanic. And it is just sort of a staggering, stark contrast between Spider-Man No Way Home coming out and the way things were when Titanic came out. Because nothing ever will rival the experience of Titanic being in theaters. Because it ran for so long it was such a national like story everybody saw it although apparently we didn't but uh everybody saw it multiple times in theaters it was a huge phenomenon it captured everything that what makes the movies great it was obviously a huge smash at the oscars um fairly or unfairly depending on 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 what you think um it introduced the world to leonardo dicaprio and kate winslet who really weren't very well known at that point it was the perfect blending of spectacle and special effects, state-of-the-art special effects, but also tremendous storytelling. 
It also was, it, it, I think it started the era of movies that cost substantial amounts of money. This movie famously costs more money than it costs to actually make the Titanic. And now you could make the case that this movie is more famous than the actual sinking of the Titanic. Uh, it is relentlessly copied and parodied. It is iconic in all of our vernacular and our, our, our movie lingo and vocabulary. It is a great movie for a reason. I think it holds up magnificently. Uh, we're going to do a recasting of it, but a recasting of it is utterly ridiculous, utterly preposterous. But uh, for me, this is an incredibly special movie that if you actually sit down and watch, maybe Schindler's List is the only other movie I could say where you'd never check your watch once. It flies by. For me, uh, you know, Adam's Rib, which was half the length of this movie, felt interminable <laughs> compared to a three hour and 15 minute movie like this that is just a complete and utter masterpiece. So uh, I I told you guys, I, I, I knew we were going to deep dive it this year. I didn't want to watch it for a long time. And it, this movie never fails to disappoint. It, it's a truly great, phenomenal movie. That's a reminder of how great and phenomenal movie going experiences can be. Yeah. I, I love the fact that um, you talked about the box office and the, and the, the top movies at the box office, all the great, all the big time box office movies that are on the top of that list are all over three hours. I just find that fascinating because it's Avatar and Avengers Endgame that are above it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so all three, all three of these top box office films are over three hours long. Avatar is not three hours long. It's like it's oh, like yeah. right it's, at three hours, it's like isn't it? Two and a half hours. Oh, I thought and I thought it was like right at three out. hours. Two hours and forty-two minutes. Oh, never mind that. But closer. there's still still longer movies. <laughs> even, Spider, even Spider-Man is a is up there too. But I, I just find right. that that uh that interesting. Todd, how about you? Yeah, the epic scope of those movies is what makes them what everyone goes to see right, in right. theater. But yeah, I uh I remember the first time I watched it. It was on the two VHS uh, thing. It was at the the beach house in uh, in mm-hmm. Seaside. That was the first time I ever watched. it. I was it. thinking the same the same instance. Yeah, but uh, I did also go see it in three D in twenty twelve, and that was what made me fully embrace it because I saw like parts of it on TV. I've seen the last hour of this movie probably twenty times, but I don't think I'd seen it all the way through more than maybe five. But um, I do love this movie, and oddly enough, I watched it on like DVD, which was a ten year anniversary DVD, and it was in two discs. So yeah, I, I, yeah. Which is the, the like thick one the, in the blue case? Is that the one you have? It's a red case. Oh, then but you I, have a different one than I do. Yeah, I'm sure it's been released a million times. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I love this movie. It it is a pretty much like a, a breathless like last, you know, two hours, which is why I didn't have like any questions from that part because I was too busy watching the movie. You know, it's it, it, <laughs> oh it's yeah, one of those I things, stopped taking notes. It, it's super intense. It's uh, there there are. I mean, it, it, there really is nothing like it. James Cameron ha- can craft like any type of movie, but when he actually puts his mind and like heart in something that he's going to spend, you know, years of his life doing, it becomes something like this. And which is why, you know, Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5 are all probably going to be awesome too. Yeah, I love uh, I, I love that you, you talk about the end of this movie. I love how I, I think I read this somewhere that like the uh, the time from when the um, when the iceberg hits the ship to when it actually goes down is like in real time. That's how long before from iceberg hitting 
to the ship going down. That's how long it actually took. And so it feels like they're kind of dragging things along a little bit, but that's the actual time it took for Titanic to sink. Well, yeah, well, real time stuff there. Yeah. What Victor Garber's character even says, he's like, yeah, it's going to go down in like, you know, an hour or something. And there was like an hour left in the movie. So Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they plan that pretty well. Now I I do want to mention a few things. One is that maybe young, maybe our three listeners are younger than us, but it's, it is notable that in, I, cause I remember this movie coming out. I don't know how much you guys remember it, but there was a backlash to this movie. Oh yeah. This movie does not, it now has universal love. No one will ever say anything bad about this movie. I, I don't think, but this movie was not loved initially um, because some people thought it was a representative of, first of all, just a hugely inflated ego by James Cameron. Uh, this movie nearly bankrupted two studios. It was thought to be, I don't know, a tad melodramatic, a tad over the top, maybe. When it got all those Oscar nominations, one that was missing was Leonardo DiCaprio, which is unfathomable today. Mm-hmm. But it was thought that Leonardo DiCaprio was sort of a lightweight. He was more known for his looks rather than his acting chops. And this movie, again, relentlessly parodied. Somewhere, maybe in the early 2000s, this movie rehabilitated its image. I'm not really sure where. And obviously, you know, for a movie that won 11 Academy Awards, it obviously was, you know, praised. But... I think, you know, serious critics, academics, people were always a little bit timid to admit or confess their love for this movie, myself included. I mean, I speak from... It probably has something to do with exactly what you said, you know? It was like a movie that men probably were hesitant to embrace because it's, you know, it's the the sappy movie that girls went to, you know, 20 times in the theater. Well, and I, I, if I remember right, I remember the narrative of this movie was this was like the first movie that um, the or the first movie I can remember where the production was like, like played a character in the movie, like the pre, the pre-production and how the movie was made and the putting together of the movie. Like people knew about this movie like a year before it came out. Everybody did because of how much it was costing about how much of a spectacle it was to even attempt to do it. So it had kind of a bad taste in people's mouths before it ever even got released. And then I think, I think what we're saying is right. There were people had this bad taste and then eventually everyone just kind of stopped and went oh, but actually it's actually a really good movie. (laughs) And, and now that's kind of where we are now. Yeah. But I I think, I think you're right though, Todd. I think there was sort of a, uh, I don't know, you know, sissification. If you liked uh, Titanic, you know, uh, it wasn't very manly. You know, Leo, more of a model, less an actor. I think the fact that Leo and Kate's acting careers also became a lot more respected mm-hmm. in the preceding years um, gave this movie more validity. <clears throat> and I think also James Cameron. I mean, he was not a particularly respected director prior to the Titanic, he was known as an innovator and a pioneer of special effects, but for God's sake, the, the guy directed True Lies before Titanic. I mean, he was not particularly known as a as a great storyteller per se. Um, a, again, a great with special effects, former truck driver too, interestingly enough. Uh, but uh, credit, credit deserves, uh, yeah, he, the, the screenplay of this movie is fantastic. The storytelling is amazing. What's interesting is that I think Avatar was a little similar, or as Arnold called it, Avada, uh, and 
it grossed more money than Titanic, but you guys would agree it was not the same experience. I mean, people saw it, people liked it. I know, I think you guys both liked it more than I did, but I, yeah, it, I love that movie. It was just twelve years later. I think that the the whole um, the the the, the the glossiness of movies and the movie theaters really had kind of even waned even by the time we had hit Avatar. So I don't know. It just Titanic holds a special place in my heart for growing up, going to the movies and uh, how powerful of a cultural experience that could be. Well, Avatar was the first like big event 3D movie. And that was that was part of it, too. But like, so I remember when I first, like, started looking at movies on IMDb, like, Titanic was at, like, a 6.8, which is, like, yeah. in, a, in a territory where it's just, like, you know, um, it has fans, but it's also just, like, not all that acclaimed necessarily. Now it's a 7.8 with 1.1 million ratings, which just shows that now, That's yeah, it is, it is looked at as, like, the absolute classic that it is, when even then, which was probably, what, 15 years ago or something, it was still just in that... I mean, maybe maybe Avatar helped resurrect it. Maybe its re-release in 3D helped resurrect it, and people saw it and they're like, "Okay, yeah, this is amazing." But it, it it is weird how how far one movie can go down and then up and then down and then up again in 25 years. Well, and Titanic had a really weird um, box office trajectory too. If I remember right, it wasn't until like it's like sixth week being released before it hit number one. I don't think it was that long, but I, I think it was like a, that, couple, yeah. a couple weeks. It, it was not number one immediately. I remember it came out on a Wednesday, which was kind of curious. But it was a movie that kind of had, it, it took a few weeks for it to catch on, I think, with the public. And then it actually started making more money as people went back to it a second or third time. Mm -hmm. I or, think where, though, the, where the big movies that make all the money now, they have to have the huge first week. And then it's how many are willing to go back for a second. And I think and, when this yeah. when when this movie had all the Oscar nominations, I think also propelled people to see it. And looking at those Oscar nominations again, the idea that Dustin Hoffman for Wag the Dog and Peter Fonda for Yulee's Gold would be placed over Leo is a huge insult. And I think says a lot about what people thought about the movie and Leo in 1998. Well, it also didn't get a screenplay nomination. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And it does have its moments like... like the thing is everyone always just remembers the 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 corny moments right the i'm the king of the world never let go i mean the 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 moment that's what people remember but that's like such an insignificant part of the movie compared to everything else that makes this movie brilliant so so it's like right. Jerry Maguire in that way yeah you could say that in in some in some way all right well let's uh let's get into some of the stuff we're going to talk about with this um our first thing we're going to do is we have a mount rushmore here and our mount rushmore is kind of inspired by both the movies we all watched this week uh adam's rib and titanic because what we're talking about is a mount rushmore of on-screen couples and um even though even though they they only made two movies together uh, to date, um, I think Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet you could say are are one of the great on screen couples of all time. Uh, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn made like ten movies together, so they're they're obviously up there as well. Um, but yeah, the greatest on screen couples of all time. Are we gonna do? Do we have a consensus here? Do we want to say we have two consensuses? Co-consensus picks, and then we each pick one. Or 
What do we want to do? I mean, we could. I, I would be fine with consensus in a Hepburn and Tracy, but I, I out of respect, out of respect. I've seen several of their movies. I, like I've seen, like, well, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was their last one. Um, and then there's Adam's Rib. I've seen Desk Set, which was another really good one. They work really well together. I mean, we, yeah. we don't have to. I don't. It's it's up to you guys. No, that I, it works for me. That works for me. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So, uh, Zach, I'll let you go first. Who are you going to submit? Wait, do these have to be Hollywood couples? Or can it just be, like, movie couples? Mo- like? Like, international? That, yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that's fine. Okay. Zach. Okay, uh, well, I mean, there, there are several candidates. Um, I think I'm just going to go with the low-hanging fruit here and go with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan because I think they made three terrific movies together in the 90s, Joe versus the Volcano, in which Meg Ryan played multiple roles, Sleepless in Seattle, and You've Got Mail. I think uh, maybe, you know, greatest of all time, I don't know. I mean, maybe they don't rival uh, Hepburn and Tracy, but I think they're good enough to be mentioned in the same breath. I think those, all three of those movies hold up pretty well and are enjoyable. And even though they don't really make movies together today, uh, I would love to see a movie with them today. Uh, but uh, they were uh, something special in the 1990s, which is an era of movies that we talk about a lot on this podcast. So uh, I'm, I'm going to nominate them. And I think Todd's looking at me a little quizzically, but uh, I, I, I think Todd enjoys those movies too. Right, Todd? Well, yeah, but I mean, that was not one of the eight that I wrote down. So I... Wow. Okay. That was one of the top ones I had on my list. So, <clears throat> all right. I want to go next. International couple. I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say it. Well, I wrote down uh, Tony Leung and Maggie Chung. Okay. They, they have they have several movies, uh, but uh, I mean, I don't know. I I mean, I I was gonna. I guess I'll have to say Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. I think they have eight movies together. It's just one of the. I mean, one of the most perfect pairings in on screen that I, I think has ever been. <laughs> and all of their movies are classic, basically. I, I think I haven't seen a couple of them, maybe, but that was one of that was the, the first one I wrote down. It was the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, in terms of just sheer volume, they have to be considered, even though some of those movies are better than others. I mean, like I, I love Love and Death and Manhattan and Annie Hall. I think those are all like three of the, you know, top two hundred movies I've ever seen. So those are ones. Yeah, that that's a good one. That I think that's a another pretty obvious one. Um, trying to think here. I, I, I we kind of have this theme of picking ones that have done multiple movies together, which kind of makes it tough because there's some that do some great things but they only do it in like one movie or if i think picking like a franchise is kind of is kind of cheating a little bit um what romantic franchise you talk about like twilight no i was thinking like like uh sylvester stallone and talia shire doing something like that but that that's kind of cheating um i mean i kind of just want to go kate and leo but i'll go i'll go a little outside the box uh, and go go old school. I'm gonna go uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Um, nice. Uh, there, that's about as as classic as you get. Um, I think 
I think I've only seen one of their partnerships, and that's Swing Time. But they made a bunch of movies together, um, and uh, and Ginger seemed to be one of the few people who could keep up with Fred Astaire in uh, not only in in uh, dialogue, but just in in dan- sheer dancing as well. So I'm going. I'm going Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire. Yeah, this was sort of an open-ended list because you could also think about like director and spouse on screen potentially. Oh, yeah. Not not really a direction I I thought about taking it in, but um, I don't know that 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 would kind of be interesting. Maybe like Sharon, well Sharon Polanski and Ter- Sharon, uh, excuse me, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski would be one, but mm. I don't think they made a whole lot together. Todd, what else did you have written down? Uh, well, the only modern one I wrote down is I was like stretching to get it, which was is Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. I think they have three movies oh, that they yeah. made. That's a good because there aren't oh. there aren't a, there aren't a ton that that do that anymore. Like that just like be in what's, each other. In what's the third one? I I can think of Crazy Ga- Stupid Love and Lala Squad. Gangster Squad. Oh gosh, oh, right. Wow. <clears throat> uh, I also wrote down uh, obviously Bogey and Bacall is one. Rock Hudson mm. and Doris Day. Those are easy. Richard Burton and uh, Elizabeth Taylor. And yeah, I also that's a good one. Yeah. Astaire and Rogers and the other ones that were mentioned already. I was thinking also you got like uh, Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, but I I haven't actually seen any of those movies, but that's a classic one. Richard so, Burton and Elizabeth Taylor should have been on the list, though. That, 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 that is almost been. like the inarguable one. Yeah. I think, yeah. I don't know. I was more thinking like romantic comedy. I, I, I don't know if, I mean, we didn't specify that necessarily, but it would have been fun to see them in a romantic comedy, though. Maybe painful. Uh, Todd, I'm surprised you didn't say Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Um, oh, that would have been the yeah. top pick. Yeah, because they were in what? They were in, like, Waking Life, too. Well. Yeah. But, I mean, but then, again, that's kind of the franchise. They're playing They're yeah, playing the same characters. I, I like the fact that we picked all picks where they've been opposite each other playing different people. Um. And honestly, I, I, even though they've only done it twice, Kate and Leo, I think, I think definitely deserve serious consideration for just one, just how co- iconic Titanic is, and then Revolutionary Road is a very good movie, and um, and they, it kind of they are able to pick up their relationship in a different spot in life too. I, I I love how that all works out, and the fact that they're just best friends too is just awesome. Did Did you guys say Bogart and Bacall? Did I miss that? Todd said that. Okay. That was an honorable mention. Or what about uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen? Were they mentioned? Oh, that's a good one. I haven't seen a lot of... The, I don't think I've ever seen a, one of their movies, though, is the issue. Yeah. I also had uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett written down because they were in both Boys in the Hood and What's Love Got to Do With It. Mm. Both very good in both movies. Nice, nice. Yeah, the more you thought about this, the more... I mean, if you're trying to get the multiple movies, it, it's kind of a short list, but uh, I think we got a we got a pretty good list there. And then I also yeah, like have seen modern modern movies don't really they don't do that anymore. It's not. Yeah, there's not those power couples anymore that you put on screen. I had Mike Nichols and Elaine May written down as well, even though they don't they didn't really make movies together. They were more of a comedy team. You could go with like Adam Sandler and whoever he oh. happens to be starting in a movie with. Or Drew Barrymore, but they've made some truly awful movies. Yeah, uh, Drew Barrymore. So. He's, he's done several with Jennifer Aniston, too. Yeah. 
So, all right. Well, let's let's recast this now. If Titanic were to come out today, who would be starring in this movie? Um, Todd, you're going to be the first one up here. Who's who's your Jack Dawson? Who takes Leo's spot? Well, so he was 22 when this movie came out. Which is just I, nuts. The, the, the age of these of, of the people in this is just crazy. I mean, I'm not like the easy one is Timothy Chalamet, but I didn't really want to say that. So I went with Ty Sheridan, who I'm not sure has the iconicness of Leo because nobody really does. But I, I think uh, I think he could do it, and it would be a it'd be a different energy probably, but it would be good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I'm everyone's still trying to make Ty Sheridan a thing, and it feels like every time he he gets his own vehicle, it it just does not work out but well i mean maybe... like voyagers right that's true that's true all right um zach who do you have uh, uh you have to go timothy chalamet there's I, I know it's the low-hanging fruit but there's just no other option until i hear a better option that can blend the artistic sort of sensitivity of jack with the rugged good looks and the great sense of humor and the ability to realistically play someone who could be from Chippewa Falls, but also is an expatriate living in Paris trying to slum it as an artist. I, I There's no other realistic casting. So, uh, yes, I, I agree with Tata. You want to be more innovative here, but come on. It's the obvious answer. You say lo- young Leo was rugged. I don't think anyone's ever used that word to describe <laughs> young Leo before. I mean, he, he, I, why, why, why not? I, you know... <coughs> Very, very easy on the eyes. That's not what rugged means. <laughs> rugged means like rough, like rocky. <laughs> rugged. Okay, I, I'm going to look up the definition of rugged. I don't know if it means. I don't know if. It Our, means rough. Okay, while he's looking that up, I'm going to give my my casting that's better than the two that you said, and I went with Tom Holland. I think I think he's, he's better. He'd, he'd be better than Shell. He's 25. That's not that much older. I don't think uh, he's I think he'd good be better than enough. Chalamet. I think he. I think he's he's plenty good looking enough. Uh, I think he more than anything, compared to the guys you said, he has the charisma to pull off Jack. And and I think that's what's missing from Ty Sheridan and Timothy Chalamet. So, like I could see him him saying the Timothy lines. Chalamet could do it, obviously. Yeah, you're saying know. Timothy Chalamet doesn't have charisma. I mean, I feel like Timothy Chalamet has played Jack before. I feel like his character in Lady Bird basically is Jack, but set in, you know, that movie, the world of that movie. I guess Chalamet, I guess, fits the fits the narrative, too, of, I mean, Chalamet's kind of become, like, he, he somehow went from being, like, the next big thing to being overhyped. Well, and, and... like... Like Leo, he kind of has like an art, artsy background a bit. Uh, he has a mysterious name with a, uh, un, a questionable uh, ethnicity of, of name and uh, the long hair and then sort of the indie roots a little bit. Um, Wouldn't this have been the perfect River Phoenix role? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, it is sort of interesting yeah. thinking about if this movie had been cast at different times. Like, I feel like maybe... Maybe 15 years ago, this could have been a Shia LaBeouf performance. Like that could have been an interesting fit that I would would have liked to have seen. Yeah, but he's too old now. Yeah, I still so like rugged. Rugged means have any broken, rocky, or uneven surface. 
I don't that, know that, what, that, is, that is the accusation or determination that Timothy Leo. Chalamet is not rugged. Oh, when I don't know. Leo wasn't. You said oh, Leo. Leo was rugged. Um. Well, you know, I mean, he's he, like uh, pristine. Like that's the opposite <laughs> of rugged. Hey, you know, he had to. Uh, he had to live in the third third steerage. Okay, you're right. I. Okay, you don't know rugged. what the word meant. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. Moving on to Rose. Played by Kate Winslet. Thomas McKenzie, obviously. We can move on to the next one. <laughs> I, did not I don't take know. I don't know. I thought about Thomas and McKenzie, but that's not who I went with. Zach, who do you have? She's, she's right. She's 21. She's got <laughs> is, uh, even like the, the flair of Thomas and McKenzie fits Rose. Like every every part of her. I don't know if, I mean, again, I you know, no offense. I don't know if she has this, the same glamour as, as Rose does. I went with Anya Taylor-Joy, her co-star in... Uh, that movie you guys liked so much uh, last, last night, night in Soho. Soho. But I also thought about Florence Pugh, but I think I, I lean a little bit more toward Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah, I have Anya Taylor-Joy written down too. Um, and the main thing, as you watch Titanic, and I really notice it more this time you're than any skinny. other, and and um, you're saying you're saying Anya Taylor-Joy is too skinny, yet you pick Thomas and McKenzie? Really? Obviously, she's not skinny anymore if you watch that stupid Shyamalan movie that we watched. <laughs> Anyways. Wow. Um, Where is this going? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but no, what I was going to say was um, Anya Taylor-Joy fits Rose because watching it this time, Kate Winslet in this movie feels like a porcelain doll. Like that's what kind of beauty she has. And Anya Taylor-Joy fits that. Yeah. And and ju- yeah. just that that just like otherworldly like perfection of beauty, um, she can pull that off. The only the other one that I was thinking actually was uh, Emma Mackey, who I just watched in mm. Death on the Nile. I think she has she has the looks and could pull it off as well. I like I like your use of the word porcelain because Rose says I don't want to be painted like a porcelain doll, and I also think a strike against Thomas and McKenzie as much as I uh, enjoy her as an actress. I don't think she's ever been funny in a movie. I think Anya T- Taylor joy has more of a propensity for humor. And I think as this movie kind of goes along, you start seeing the Rose character open up a little bit and be a little bit more uh, humorous and edgy and rugged. Tries to be, no. tries to try. I mean, she, you know, she almost gets in a, fight at the dance hall right well i guess not a fight but, you know she goes to the dance hall in the in the, in the she does punch somebody in the face that's true yes she does a very rugged real good boogie at him too yeah that's it much more rugged than leo yes that's true all right how about cal brought to this us by billy easiest zane one easiest todd slam dunk well, this is obviously an army hammer role, but I didn't go with him because he's too old. So I went with the and canceled poor the poor man's army hammer, which is Blake Jenner, who <laughs> is uh, I don't know. You probably know him from Everybody Wants Some and some other stuff. He's uh, he oh, I know who army you're hammer. talking about. Yeah. Okay. Are, are okay. you forget, are you forgetting that Cal has to be like not like uh. He has to be like British, right, or like at least mid-Atlantic in his accent. I think Blake. Jen- oh, I think I don't think any- Billy Zane has any specificity of what he's doing with with his character. <laughs> <laughs> All I see with Blake Jenner is just like a like a skater dude or something. I don't. I couldn't see him in a movie set in 1912. I, 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 debonair is not a word that I would use to describe him. 
But, right. but Army well, who, Hammer is perfect for that one. Who do you have? Yeah, Zach? but ha Army Hammer has been canceled. We could right. do the canceled version of this movie and we could cast, uh, you know, the who, who the Ansel Elgort as Jack. Um, but oh, uh, <laughs> I went with um, Henry Cavill. I thought that was the, the slam dunk pick. Oh, he's way too old. He no, is he's too not. old. He's. He's, he's like in his, I think he's in his, no, I don't think he's quite 40. Well, we'll have Billy to Zane I'm was say 30. Billy Henry Zane Cavill, was 30 when this Henry Cavill made. is 30 tw tw uh, 38. Oh, who cares? Make Cal a little older. Who cares? He's probably more rugged than Leo. So it's better I, than Blake Jenner. Come on. And do we really want the Jenners involved in this movie? <laughs> is it the All same right. family? I don't even know. <laughs> it's not the same family. Oh, okay. Um, I have, I have three names written down. One of them was Army Hammer. I felt like that was just like, the obvious you, you, one. You, yeah. you need a tall wooden douchebag. You're going to go with Army Hammer. <laughs> um, then uh, the the other ones I wrote down are kind of kind of relating to some of the stuff you said. So, uh, Zach, you mentioned uh, Henry Cavill, who has played Superman. I went with the person who played Superman in the Supergirl show, which is Tyler Hoechlin, who actually also was in Everybody Wants Some. Oh, um, yeah. I, I thought that one would work. And then the other thing, I mean, we need someone who could who could realistically be in 1912 how about someone who was in 1917 and i went with george mckay also i thought he could mm. pull it off i don't know what he looks like though george mckay yeah i i, I like hear the, the name like, i don't i don't get an the, the the main guy in 1917 that's not helpful Connor mckenzie isaiah mckenzie <laughs> uh Anyways, I I, I, I I thought any of those could work. All right, Old Rose. I like how her, her, she's just billed as Old Rose. Um, Gloria Stewart, who actually lived for 13 years after this movie was made <laughs> and died in 2010 at the age of 100. Yeah, That's so just she was awesome. 87, but her character is supposed to be over 100 years old. And, the and then she lived to be over 100. Right. The only actress I could think of that is that old is Eva Marie Saint. Because <laughs> Betty White is now dead. I don't know what Eva Marie Saint is doing now. I don't think she's acted in probably like 30 years. But that's what I'm, I'm saying. Because, I mean, I know that like Vanessa Redgrave and Judy Dench look like they're 100, but they're not. That's not Ouch. bad. That's not bad. Zach? I thought this was an obvious one. It has to be Ellen Burson. I mean... She was in. She's she's still acting. Apparently, she got an Oscar yep. snub last year for yes, playing, playing the elderly the, mother. The mother of a, of like a thirty-year-old. For, for playing the eighty-seven-year-old mother of a twenty-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I and I I did just look. I I thought I forgot about Vanessa Redgrave until Todd looked her up or Todd mentioned her, and she's she is still alive. I I, I did not realize that. Eva Marie Saint was in a movie in twenty nineteen. What the hell? Yeah, she's right. uh, she she's only been in 29 <laughs> movies. So I've got two. Um one, if I if I wanted to go with someone who I think could pull off being the older Anya Taylor Joy, um, I thought uh Maggie Smith would work well, but I don't think Maggie right. Smith could ever do anything but a British accent. So um that that kind of canceled her out so then the other one i wrote down was june squib oh my god wow june squib june squib is alexander payne directing your <laughs> remake june squib I, I looked it up she's like 92 now she's getting up there even when saying it's 98 
Charlie Jean's Book was in that Adam Sandler movie, the Halloween movie. <clears throat> See, we know she's still acting. I think Jean right. Squibb is either a terrible choice or a brilliant choice. I can't decide which one, though. Would, I, I would think you really Maggie's... want June Squibb narrating this tragic, heartbreaking story? I think story? Maggie Smith would work well if I thought she could pull off an accent other than being Maggie Smith. So, Well, but... now now only anyone younger than us would just think, you know, Professor from Harry Potter. That, yeah. That, that would ruin True. that. True. Or, or Downton Abbey. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that we, we mentioned it several times. I have no idea what's going on with the with the uh, accents in this movie because everyone kind of sounds the same because everyone's either British or yeah that that like mid Atlantic to New England accent of upper class where it almost sounds British except Jack and maybe that's one of the reasons why he doesn't sound like he belongs because he's the only one that actually sounds like an American. So you think they should have gone like William H Macy, you know, like authentic Midwest accent? I, I don't know. It just is it's just odd that everyone is is either sound is either British or sounds like they're trying to be British. Or badly hiding the fact that they actually are. All right. Those were the four we were doing all together. Todd, did you have any others? Uh yeah, I had two <laughs> others. I had um the captain John Smith I had uh, played by Kenneth Barana. I think his name's EJ Smith. Okay. Not not it's not pick. Pocahontas. Isn't it John Smith? Isn't that how I don't know? Yeah, I call him EJ. Hold on. I wrote down John. It just says Captain Captain Smith Smith. on IMDb. It was on Wikipedia. And I love it. Uh, I had what? It's Edward Smith, by the way. Oh well then uh, yeah, then I screwed up. Um then Love It, which is the Bill Paxton character. I had Charlie Hunnam because he would actually look good wearing an earring. Yes, that's a good pick. That's not bad. That's not bad. Anything else? No, that was it. All right. Zach? Uh, I had a few. I had my Brock Levitt. Uh, he's, he's too old, but I'd still go with it. Mark Ruffalo? Bleach hair and an earring. Could, could do in his sleep. Um, had a lot of interesting conversations with the wife about the unsinkable Molly Brown. <coughs> Um, obviously, oh, I thought this was easy. Well, Edward so, John Smith. It says Edward John Smith. No, so EJ, obvi- obviously a very rugged man. Um, Molly Brown uh, would still obviously play, by, be played by Kathy Bates twenty five years later. But <laughs> um, I, my wife said Cardi B, and which made me think uh, not so much about the pick, but I was wondering since Todd has never heard of Olivia Rodrigo, do you know who Cardi B is, Todd? Well, yeah, she was in Hustlers. Okay. And uh, I couldn't get the pick out of my head. At first, I thought it was a horrible pick, but now I just can't get it out of my head. My my other pick was Megan McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy. M- Melissa McCarthy. Who's Megan? Yeah, that McCarthy? that's the obvious choice. That's who I had written down for for Molly Brown. I don't and then there's a Megan McCarthy. And then I had um, Megan Mullally. Well, see, that's well, that's <laughs> maybe where I'm going a little bit because as my captain, EJ Edward John Smith, I had Nick Offerman. So maybe Megan Mullally would be. The unsinkable Molly Brown. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Yeah. I had, so I had Melissa McCarthy as unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, my love it. I had Oscar Isaac. Um, okay. Uh, I had for the captain, I had two names written down um, Stanley Tucci and Gary Oldman. 
I could see. I probably yeah. Oldman's better, but yeah. Tucci could pull it off. Um, Tucci could have been one of the other guys. He could have been like the the I, guy who Tucci designed the been, ship. And... Yeah, Ursay. Yeah, that's that's what I would say. Or Ismay, whatever his name is. Ismay. Yeah, that's, yeah that's I was trying one. to come up with a good Ismay. I was having trouble. Uh, I was kind of thinking. Um, what is up with I, us in names today? He just said Jim Ursay, like the Colts <laughs> owner. Like <laughs> you didn't um, think. You didn't think. I thought his name was Ursay for most of the movie, and I was thinking, okay, he's an asshole like Jim Ursay. Maybe they named it in an honor. No, it, it was the, not the, be, the best. The best one I had for Ismay was uh was Edward Norton. Um, and then the last one the I had. Stash? Oh no, uh, yeah, um, Rose's mother, uh, played oh, by we Sarah forgot Paulson. To cast her. Sarah Paulson. Yeah, that's a good one. I had uh, Tilda Swinton. Oh, yeah. Tilda Swinton, I could see too. Um, or or maybe Kate Blanchett, I could see also someone like that. Um, and then uh, the last one, Andrews, the Victor Garber character, I'd Colin Firth. That's good. That's 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 very very good. Oh wait wait, Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Oh, I thought you meant Colin Farrell. I'm sorry. No, Colin My Firth. brain is on is slightly distracted today. Uh, Colin Farrell would be much better for that role, but okay. So who's oh, directing no. this movie nowadays? Um, I was thinking my if you're going the James Cameron route, which is like a sci-fi innovative director, I was thinking like Alex Garland or something. Uh, that'd be a, whoa. about the right. Well, then uh, Oscar Isaac would definitely be love it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that fit. That fits. Um, I mean, because he's this is the guy that brought us Terminator. Oh, and then, then Cal, if, if 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 Alex Garland's doing it, then Cal has to be Domhnall Gleeson. Hmm. I like it. Yeah. But if he went like J.J. Abrams. Yeah. See, that's what I'd be nervous about. You don't want to go like anyone but the Russo brothers. Let's let's get out of you know. Franchises. What about Villeneuve? Like that'd be, yeah. that'd be around yeah. the same kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know how many historical movies he's done though. This was yeah. this was the only thing like this that Cameron ever did. That's true. Yeah. Maybe Ridley Scott. Oh, Why gosh. not? Now we're talking. Uh, all right. Who would who would Nicolas Cage play? Todd. I mean, depending on the time, I'd say he probably would be either Hockley or Captain. But I don't think he really belongs in this movie at all. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Do you have anybody good for Dick Cage? Um Jim Ursay. <laughs> The, I I wrote down Andrews, the Victor Garber character. I mean, I could I could see him standing at the clock. I'm sorry, I didn't build you a stronger ship, Rose. I... <laughs> <laughs> what about Nick Cage as, as Brock Levitt? Is is that just kind of oh. the movie? If if we bookend it with him, or or what? Because what if, if he played? Um, what if he played Louis Bodine? <laughs> <laughs> That, that would be something. <laughs> he could be Lovejoy. Cal's this was like a, the early Cal's 80s. He bodyguard. would be one of the buddies. He'd be like Fabrizio or Tommy yeah. or one of those yeah. guys. Yeah, totally. Because Eric Stoltz would be Jack. Yes. Ooh. Or or would or would he um, 
or would it go the route of uh, Back to the Future and he'd be replaced by Michael J. Fox? Yeah, you know, I think the next time we get together yeah. and have a drunken escapade, we should recast this movie in every decade. That sounds oh. like a great waste of like eight hours. It does. That sounds amazing. We this needs to happen. This needs we to could, happen. We could turn the movie on three times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it. All right. Zach, highest war performance in Titanic. Highest war performance. Okay. Well, I mean, a lot of great performances in this movie. Um, it's hard. I, as I mentioned, it's it's vulgar to even suggest that you could recast this movie um, today. Um, let's see. I mean, you could probably you could probably put some some dashing, rugged young star from the '90s into Leo role. It's feasible. Um, I think. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the out, outsider pick. I'm gonna go with Gloria Stewart. I, I know that there were a lot of older actresses that you could have done that role, but I feel like she brings a sort of elegance to it that obviously June Squibb could not capture. And I don't know, it's kind of like a hard role in a way because like she had to like, you know, have scenes in a wheelchair being lifted from the helicopter. She had to work with a maniacal director and James Cameron. And uh, yeah, I, 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 she's pretty good in the movie. I mean, that, that sort of framing device, I think gets lampooned in a lot of movies. And so, yeah, why not? Not bad, not bad. Uh, I'll go next. My pick for highest war is Billy Zane. I uh, he is the one person in this movie who, when you think of them and their acting career, this is all you can think of, because he became he was this became him. Like this is all he was from then on. Like he even tried to make like an like a superhero movie like the next year. And you couldn't. It, it, it Phantom like flopped hardcore. Why? Because he was Cal. Um, and he he is like like when I think this movie, you you think Jack and Rose, but pretty close second. You think of like one of the greatest like slime balls of all time, and that's Cal. And it's because Billy Zane plays it to perfection. And he's not even that great of an actor, but he just embodies this persona so perfectly. That's more about Billy Zane's career than it is about the role, though. That's that's fair. That's fair. But I think I don't know that that was Cal was the hardest one for me to recast, just simply because nobody I could think of could pull it off quite like Billy Zane did. Gee, I don't know. I could think of a lot of actors in the '90s, but okay. I think Ethan Hawke would have been an awesome Hawkley, but okay. Oh, that that could have been interesting. Uh, I mean, I was going to say Leo because mainly because this is like the the full spectrum of Leo's career is this role. Like you can see what is to come. You can see like the slick con artist nature of like his catch me if you can character. You could when he dresses up, you can see like the elegance of his like great Gatsby and then he has like the brattiness of like the Wolf of Wall Street like everything is on display here but it's like such a like a complete uh, arc of one character that it's hard to single anything out but like I could see the what has become of what is obviously the best actor of his generation and it's all in this role and I mean yeah other people maybe could have come close to playing it but I mean no I don't think even uh, 
Timmy uh, Shamlet, or uh, whatever we call him, uh, could could have even done it. Yeah, that that's that's the other one I was thinking too. He he's he's just so good in this. And there like, are so like... many times I was just like, he is doing his Frank Lloyd, <laughs> or he is doing Jordan Belfort, and this is way before that. He just has so much natural charisma, and that it it just you can just see it oozing off the screen. Yeah, the other actors considered for the role were Matthew McConaughey, Chris O'Donnell, Billy Crudup, Stephen Dorff, and Tom Cruise and Jeremy Sisto. I mean, that's that's just not happening. That's no. all a uh, you know pretty major misses. I saw yeah. Jared Leto. He uh, refused to audition for it, so <laughs> James Cameron said no, which sounds perfectly on on uh, on par for Jared Leto. Yeah, he I refused to audition. I didn't mention Jared Leto because Jared Leto actually maybe in 1997 could have pulled it off. That's that's the closest, maybe. And that was maybe my only hesitance to saying that Leo is the undisputed winner of the highest war. But I agree with pretty much everything Todd says. Yeah, you think like his character in like Requiem for a Dream, I could totally see Jared Leto pulling it off. And he was All kind right. of a similar stature to Leo, too. Not not particularly well-known in 1997. Mm-hmm. Kind of a breakout role. I, well, I, Leo was already Oscar-nominated. Yeah, but it wasn't... He, I don't know if he was necessarily a household name in, in when Titanic came out. I mean... Basketball he, Diaries, Growing Pains. Like, he had his stuff going mm-hmm. going to this. Which, again, points to why Tom Harold Holland makes sense, because he, he was a child actor as well. Anyways. Worst performance, Zach... Uh, well, again, it's not so much the performance, although maybe it is. I think it's maybe more the character. But we got to go Louis Abernathy as Louis Bodine because uh, this is a tragic, beautiful love story. And then in the middle of it, you get a fat comic book guy in a Watchmen T-shirt talking about her ass sticking up in the air. Pretty cool, huh? Doing the computer diagram. Probably talking. Should have been Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, well, there we go. Now we're talking. That That is the ultimate Philip Seymour Hoffman role. Misguided, real missed opportunity there. I, I rest my case. Yeah, he, he's the one that just doesn't feel like he fits. But if you were to go in like on the Titanic and the one that doesn't feel like they fit and I thought was a horrible performance, Kathy Bates. I, I don't I think I think her her accent of what she's trying to pull off and how that accent reads the lines just doesn't work. Really and cool. and that, that was one thing I was thinking, as soon as I thought Melissa McCarthy as a recast, I think she could correct all the things Kathy Bates screwed up about that character really easily. And so, but yeah, I thought Kathy Bates just, that accent just felt way too manufactured and fake for her. I don't think she had an accent. Oh, she didn't have some sort of southern accent where she's trying to say y'all every five seconds? But Kathy Bates is from the South. Jeez, Terry, you just sounded like Rand Janis. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I that that's that's where that I've always that Kathy Bates always has bothered me in this. Todd. Uh I mean, for the third time in our power rank or deep dives, it's Bill Paxton. It's, it's clearly the worst performance in this movie. It, I mean, he doesn't fit. He doesn't look right. The, it's just distracting. What is with that hair? Like the hair yeah. is like uh, like an Loki LVP uh, 
thing i mean and, and the earring like what is like i don't know what they were going for why is bill paxton in this movie and why was it like that it, if he was just playing like fred hayes more more kind of a character it would have worked more but this it was bad everything about that character and the performance is bad well with the first shot of him he's holding up a camera and you're thinking what is this jack's back taxes at a fred hayes show and then what's with him taking off his shirt I mean, that's one of the first times we see him is this shirt is off. Like, what's going on there? And I agree. But Terry brings up an interesting point. Is it really fair to fault the actors who are in the present day version of the story? Because it's probably it's a di more difficult question to ask the question. Who gives the worst performance on on the ship? Because It's kind of I, I don't know, easier to point out the, you know, the, the, the flaws in, in the framing device. But on the ship, I, I would have said uh, the captain. Yeah, see, and I, I would go with Fabrizio. Because oh. I think his accent is a little uh, muddled That's as well. fair. That's fair, too. <clears throat> his accent is fine. stereotypical as very stoic. See, I, I, would say, I would say Fabrizio and Kathy Bates as Molly Brown are both, like, stereotypical accents, which makes it, makes it tough. I want to go to America! <laughs> yeah, that, that was a work. really good Fabrizio impression, by the way. That was, like, oh, spot you. on. Um, Better than right. Janice. <laughs> that was as quite the shout out there, Todd. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Aunt Janice shout out and a, a Big Al reference on this episode. I know, I know. We've got we got a lot going on here. Amazing Larry, Big Tim, High Roller, minor character of the film award. I'm going uh, with Tommy, played by Jason Barry, the Irish the Irish buddy they find on, on the ship. He's, he's just great. And, and he's fun. And, um, and he's kind of in the middle of everything. He's the one that's kind of leading the charge to try and get out of the, of the, uh, the lower decks. Um, I, I, where Fabrizio feels like a caricature. Tommy feels cool. So I'm going Tommy. Todd. Uh, so I don't know what the character's name is, but he's the guy that when they're when they're at the steerage party and he's like dancing around and then he eats shit and then he gets they help him up and the first thing he does is grab his beer swig and then he nods and he keeps dancing. Like that guy I want to party with. <laughs> you guys nice. remember that character? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's a great pick. Zach, who do you got? Yeah, that's that's better than my pick. I went with Lovejoy. Do you guys know Lovejoy's first name? No, no. According to IMDb, his full name is Spicer Lovejoy. And uh, yeah, I mean his his rigid adherence and loyalty to Cal is something to behold. Basically, that he's willing to risk his life just to make sure that uh, you know Leo gets uh, you know cuffed up and. That uh, you know, uh, the you know Kate and Leo get shot down. Um, <coughs> it's it's a pretty dogged adherence. And uh, the funny thing is, he's way smarter than everybody else in the movie because he notices that Leo had time to untie his shoes and take off his coat. Um, you wonder what what is with this guy who's more intelligent than ninety percent of the other people in this movie? What what's he doing? Um, I want to know more of his backstory though, because Rose does say he was a former police officer. Um, Maybe got disgraced in something. I don't know. I feel like maybe there's a sequel there. The, the, the backstory of Lovejoy. Yet he was dumb enough to end up on the crack 
when the ship broke in half. That is true. Yeah. Unfortunate timing there. But this was, I think, the first time where I realized that that was his demise. And that's where he ended up. We could have a good category for this movie, too, about the most interesting death. Because that, that one is up there. And then, of course, you have the, the, the uh, Murdoch's death, where he shoots himself. And then you've got Fabrizio's death. I mean, there's lots of different options you could go. I, I was thinking, and Tommy's Fabri death, of course. Yeah, Tommy's death is like the is one of the more tragic ones. Fabrizio's right. death felt unnecessary. A over the top. Yeah, but that's his character. But, you know, but, he but, went but, out the <laughs> appropriately. But he was one where I was like, "Did you really have to kill Fabrizio?" But then I realized you did. Well, like in that Tommy way had too? to die. Fabrizio had to die because there needed to be no record of Jack ever, that's other than point. other than Rose. That's a good point. So that for that reason alone, Fabrizio and Tommy had to die. Well, but that, does that mean the little girl died? Now, this brings up an interesting point. In the deleted <laughs> scenes of this movie, which I did watch, the little girl does die. And Cameron oh. said that that was just a little too grisly to watch. Yeah, she gets uh, kind of like Jack and Rose do. She gets stuck in a stairwell that eventually floods with her father. Oh, wow. R.I.P. Cora. Still, still his best girl. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm surprised Todd didn't give her the worst performance, by the way. Ouch. No, I have to give it to Paxton. Like every time we do one of his movies. All right, should we just rename it the, the Bill Paxton worst performance? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right. Well, uh, moving on to some of our other stupid names here. Uh, the Spider Stick Man and Billy Bat's Douchebag. Todd, what do we got? Uh, the stick man I wrote down uh, the art the artists in France that uh, that get get all the uh, naked ladies to pose for them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Jack is of course a professional. Uh, the the biggest douchebag, I um I'll say the guy who said that they were going to have to pay for the door. Like uh, he works for White <laughs> Star Line. He's like that's White Star Line property, and damn like the it. ship is like getting. Getting a, I had him written down too as the biggest douche. God damn it! <laughs> and there are so many douches in this movie. Why does he stick out? Because I'm He's only sure with all seconds. of my picks. <laughs> oh, That's a great pick. Obviously, I had him down too. Like he sticks out more than anyone else, and it's not like it's not like he really does anything that bad in the movie. It's uh, he doesn't result in anyone's death. But it, I like the White Star Line guys though. But that guy's a douchebag. Like the guys that see the that that see the iceberg. Like those guys are awesome. They they were like almost my uh, my amazing Larry Award. But yeah, that guy was. Uh, uh, my honorable mention, uh, amazing Larry Award is the uh, the orchestra. Yeah, that's the a better that. pick. They should, yeah. Can I change my pick? That's a better pick. Yeah, much better. Especially the one that looks like James Badge Dale, that you that's always facing the camera. I just saw Ian Grufold was in this movie. I didn't. Yeah, know that. he's he's the he's the one that comes back. He's the one in the in the lifeboat that comes back. I also like as a minor character the guy that's on the that's um, laying on the ledge when the ship goes down with Jack and Rose. He looks like a chef. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know his story, but he was smart. I mean, he mm -hmm. basically had the right formula all along. That's the safe. That's the best place to be on the boat if you really can't get into a lifeboat. I thought one of the trivia questions was going to be where were the lifeboats tested? Oh, where were they tested? Belfast. Oh, okay. Mm. Well, These lifeboats were tested in Belfast before maybe, we left. 
maybe they could they hold the weight to, of 70 men. Maybe they had the Van Morrison song in the background. And they, and they went to go see a movie. There you go. All right, Zach, stick man and douchebag. Uh, so the, well, the, the douchebag, I agree with Todd, as I said, but you have to also think about um, Ismay because he does <laughs> get you, on Zach. a boat. He does get on a boat with the women and children. He's in. He's the one that pushes the idea that they should uh, speed up along the way, and he's never heard of Dr. Freud. Um, but obviously the answer is Cal, and I think we have to go with, just as we're going to rename this the Bill Paxton Bad Performance, we're going to rename this the Cal Hockley Douchebag Award, right? He, I mean, he, yeah. this, is a, this is a Mount Rushmore of douchebag performances. And, you know, going back to Terry's pick as Billy Zane, which is very unfair, I mean, this is an incredible performance. If you're going to go down at this one iconic performance for the rest of your career and get typecast, this is the way to do it, because the the, the look... The, the the outfit, the hair, the lips, it's a magnificent douchebag performance. And it just emanates from him. And, of course, it defined the rest of his career. In a way, it's an extremely high-war performance as well, maybe even more so than Leo. I'll always win, Jack. I'll always win. He's called, like, uh, Rose calls him an unimaginable bastard. Like, like, I, and I, I noticed that line, too. That was a great line. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah. That, was a, that was a great line. In her delivery with, and with that line, was that was great, too. And then you also said Stickman? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I had some thoughts about Stickman in this movie. Surprisingly few Stickman in this movie. Now, I think it's a pretty good sign when you have a high Stickman to douchebag ratio, or is it douchebag? When you have way more douchebags than Stickman. Um, I, I, this is maybe one of my conspiracy theories. I don't know how you can call Jack a stick man in this movie. Uh, he was not shacking up with any of the French prostitutes, as you know, he says. That's um, his favorite one was the one with one leg. Exactly. Clearly, I think he has performance issues uh, because uh, he is quite sweaty. Uh, he's shaking. Um, he's clearly inexperienced in that department. Um, he doesn't know what to do. He is out of control in that scene. That that is like a, a Jared Goff in the Super Bowl, you know, heads light in the heads in the light moment. Like he uh, he is that that is totally <coughs> taking him off any sort of stickman, um, you know, uh, option. So you're not left with a whole lot of other options. The one I'm going to go with is, is Guggenheim, um, one of the two rich guys on the ship. Now, the more you think about Guggenheim, I don't know if you remember, he's the one in the top hat. Yeah. Uh, he actually has some real solid stickman qualifications if you look at his resume. Isn't he the one that uh, wanted to go out in his best and uh, exactly. orders a brandy? That, and how is that <laughs> not a stickman way to go out? He's in his best suit. He refuses the life vest, and he wants a brandy. That is solid <laughs> stickman. Burgess Meredith would be proud. He's on the ship with Madame Holbert. Who is uh, he is banging and every every it's the talk of the town everybody knows it. I actually think Guggenheim makes a pretty solid stick man qual uh, you know uh, candidate for this movie and and maybe you know even the, even the upper echelon because he devoted himself to the art of stickery and he also I think gives the greatest <laughs> reaction in his death. You guys remember what he looked like right before his death, right? And he's just sitting there as the water is climbing. He doesn't try to escape. I mean that that is that, that's you know in the words of Alec Baldwin that is solid brass balls of brass steel. I that, that is an impressive way to go out, very worthy of stickman quality and uh hats off to Guggenheim who also is maybe my low key um you know uh minor character in this movie but I wanted to bring up his uh, stickman points as well. Brass balls of steel. <laughs> 
that was uh, yeah i don't know i was gonna try to quote billy madison but i couldn't remember all the time not gonna do it <laughs> you're awarded no points <laughs> and may god may have mercy on your soul uh I, I, coherent, whatever i think you're right that guggenheim might be the sick man of the movie he has to be that that, that you you lay out a, a compelling argument um okay yeah, I'm going to say, but my stick man, the one I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Sven. The one that loses the poker hand. God damn it, Terry. I had a Sven point I wanted to make later. <laughs> go, go ahead with your point, and then I'll say I, mine. I thought, I, and by the way, I thought we were going to have a question in trivia about what was the losing hand, what was the winning hand, and the losing oh, hand was God, two pair. Yes. And the winning well, hand was happened, a full house. Well, yeah, full house would have been too easy. What, what did Sven have, though? Two pair. Okay, I wouldn't have gotten that. It's not bad. It's not bad. Um, <clears throat> the the douchebag I've written down is Ismay because yeah, he's the reason that they crashed, and then he's the and then he's the only one that's responsible that escapes and didn't have the the honor to go down with the ship. Um, but yeah, it's Cal. My favorite Cal moment is when he uh, he uh, rips the gun out of Lovejoy's pocket, and then you see him in slow motion with the model look on his face. Uh, yeah, running toward, running down the stairs, wielding the gun, and that's that's like if you want to know in what Cal Hockley is all about, it's a Mission Impossible moment right there. Yeah, he's he's gonna he may be upset, but he's gonna look good being upset. Um, and the other great moment is when he realizes that he just lost the diamond. That just the look on his face is just priceless. It's brilliant. That was uh, the Army yeah. Hammer scene right there. It, it was, it was, it was just, but just the. I put the jacket on her. I put the jacket on her. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, flaws, outdated conspiracy theories. Outdated doesn't really work here, but flaws and conspiracy theories. Zach. Okay. Well, I was going to say a flaw, which is that I don't know how well the special effects in this movie hold up. I, I think there are some kind of those big sweeping shots that go across the whole ship it's pretty clear that that's computer animated um and it 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 becomes noticeable with each passing year that you watch this movie um which is unfortunate um i also wonder how did the sketches of rose survive Uh, they are charcoal sketches and they are apparently immaculately preserved um even though they're sitting at the bottom of the ocean i'm not really sure how that exists. Um, I have a couple of uh, connections to conspiracy theories um, to uncut gems. I feel like Howard Rourke is the one who buys the heart of the ocean because when Bill Paxton is on the phone, he said he's talking to someone named Barry, which was also Adam Sandler's character name in Punch Drunk Love. Don't you feel... Howard Rourke? Howard Ratner? Yeah, Howard Radner. Did I say Howard Rourke? Yeah. You're doing, I'm, you're doing just great with names today, Zach. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> don't you feel like Howard Ratner would uh, buy the heart, the heart of the Ocean? Wouldn't that be the crazy yes. investment that he made? Um, yeah. And then the other connection I had to Uncut Gems, it wasn't really a great point or anything, but I feel like Lovejoy... Um, is a lot like Keith William Richards in Uncut <coughs> Gems. Uh, and that would be the, if we were going to recast Lovejoy, it would be uh, Keith William Richards as Phil. 
That's not bad. Nice. That's not bad. Yeah. I had I had two flaws that I that I wanted to point out. One, like it's the first time I noticed it watching it, but like the biggest plot contrivance maybe like ever and the and they didn't even try to hide it was so the the um the iceberg hits and like they're talking about how how things are how it it's it it hit bad and all this stuff and you have just that five seconds where jack and rose are standing there and jack goes this is bad and rose goes we should go tell cal and mom it's like all right, the the two people who hate you the most, you you just created the situation where they can slip the the diamond into his pocket and he can get arrested and then Rose has to be around Callaghan and and why this is bad. We should go tell them. Like that's the stupidest thing ever. That that doesn't make any sense. It is the biggest plot contrivance I've ever seen and I don't know how I missed it until just now. Uh it, it, it makes no sense. I disagree with that. I, I feel like that's actually something that a 17-year-old girl would say. I mean, I, I think that sort of just shows that she still has some feelings for the people in her life that were meaningful. However, it does bring up another conspiracy theory that I had, which is, wouldn't the ultimate story of Kate and Leo in this movie, wouldn't it have been worse if they had survived and gone to New York? Because you got to think that they would have, you know, the master at arms would have locked Jack up for the whole ship. There's no way Hockley or the mother would allow them to get off the boat together. So did was it really so bad that he died for, for the integrity of their relationship? Mm, that's I mean, a good point. It, it, I'm just saying it seemed unlikely. Yeah. But it, it, it all turned out the way it should have turned out. I mean, there's only so many places on the boat you can hide. I'm impressed that they had the wherewithal to search the car, by the way. I don't know how they how they came across that. Um, well, because they know uh, they went through the boiler room. I guess. And yeah. that was the only way out of it. All right. My, my other flaw is, uh, so the captain dies in the control room when, uh, when the, the glass gives way. And and it, it's like there's no water in there, and then the glass gets way. He's wading his way to the control room through knee deep water, and then gets into the control room without any water in it. Okay, editing. Yeah, I, I was just like, wait a second, I, I and and I noticed it this time. I'm like, wait, there there's water everywhere. How are you going to get into the control room? And then all of a sudden he's just in it and it's empty. I'm like, that didn't make any sense. But it, I mean, it, it made, it made for a better moment, but it still was just like that continuity error. That didn't make any sense. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, well, my only flaw is like when they're, when they're spitting off the deck, the wind is like whipping back toward them. It doesn't matter how much force you have behind your loogie. It's still going to come back at you or hit the people next to him. It's, that's just science. But uh, just other things, like, I, I think the, the the beginning scenes don't belong with the movie necessarily because they're shot in a way that Cameron thinks he's doing, like, The Abyss or Aliens or something. I feel like something's going to, like, pop out of the, the ship or something like that when, when it's underwater. It's really effective, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really fit. But he, he really knows how to build suspense like that. And also, one other just random thought was, like, when, 
when Rose gets onto the boat at the end and she's all wrapped up in the blanket, all I could think was like, where's the Vicodin? It's freezing out there, man. <laughs> but uh, obviously it was before Sideways, so she wouldn't have said that. But... <laughs> it's five clicks, Jackson. <laughs> That was a great point. That was the best point anyone has made on this stupid podcast. (laughs) I'd never thought, because I always thought about this movie having odd parallels to Apollo 13 because of James Horner and uh, Bill Paxton, but sideways, that just brings it to a whole nother level right there. Wow. Wow. All right. Okay. Let's wrap this up. LVP and MVP. We skipped a couple categories. Did we? Oh, if there were a sequel? (laughs) Yeah, and favorite scene. Oh, I, I skipped favorite scene. Oh, I completely forgot. I well, if there were a scene. sequel, what I wrote was like, this would be a really cool video game. Like, there's like the checkpoints <laughs> of a great video game narrative. You have like the poker scene, like you have like, the Zukovsky scene in that uh, Tomorrow Never Dies uh, video game. And then you have like the spitting scene. You could be, have some like random thing with that. You have the chase scenes. You have the escape sequence. And you have the constant like climbing up the ship. Wouldn't that make like a really cool like uh, adventure video game? Yeah, I could but see that. They never did that somehow. Like that that seems crazy to me. I could see the Todd, do you remember like the the Home Alone 1 video game? Yeah. I could see part of this being like that where you have like a time period where you have to survive and and you have to survive not drowning and you have to survive getting chased by Hockley. And you have to wield an axe at a handcuffs <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah yep that's not bad that's not bad uh did you have a, a sequel idea zach yeah it was called revolutionary road I mean, oh there was, you go was the sequel to this movie right that's fair that's fair i okay. think the best i think the best scene in this movie is when they is when they first see the iceberg that that moment mm. always gets me i no matter how many times i've seen this movie i always like kind of forget that that <laughs> moment's about to happen and it's a reminder that I think a lot of people went to this movie just thinking it was going to be about the iceberg and the crash. But Cameron had the audacity to make the first hour and 40 minutes of this movie a love story that is every bit as gripping and as thrilling as the actual sinking. So hats off to Cameron. But uh, when they see the iceberg, that's a pretty pretty awesome scene. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. I had down for best scene... Um the sketch scene. I, I think, I think it it's, it's just so, so well done and so well acted between the two of them. And, and uh, yeah, the, the, the sketch scene is just, it, it's just a great, great scene. Mine's when he's, when he's handcuffed in the, in the basement and she's got to come <laughs> rescue him. Cause like that, that scene I've seen so many times, but it, it never fails to, uh, create intensity and emotion like he like you know go take a couple practice swings and then she like and you'll hit that mark again it's like uh, okay yeah we're not doing that anymore just just come on <laughs> like that that oh, that whole sequence is just awesome and you could you could just feel the stakes being raised and like that, yeah, that that's my favorite scene Loki douchebag the guy that she had to punch because he was running the wrong direction and then he just yeah. looks at her and goes the hell with you and 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 runs away Another scene I really like too is when Rose's mother tells her that uh, you know there's nothing left in the family name, 
that's a good scene because that's the only scene in the whole movie you get any sort of humanity for that mother character and you, and you you start understanding Rose's predicament as a bit more complex than just that she wants to escape that there's a lot of baggage to it that's I think that's a, that's a well done scene that people for, tend to forget about I also love the scene when he goes to and crashes their their hoity-toity uh, party and talks about uh, mm. traveling the world <clears throat> yeah tossing matches across the table and yep yeah that's a that's a great scene too um yeah the mother is another candidate for biggest douchebag of the movie so i say a high ratio of douchebag to really high ratio characters like like the douchiest line of the movie might be are the are the lifeboats going to be loaded according to class you know the one and, and no and even the the best part is knowing that she doesn't have any anymore because the money is yeah, gone. She's a hypocrite. Yeah, totally, one hundred percent. That makes her even more of a douchebag. All right. Now the movie never even says what happens to her. It doesn't. You're right. Because Rose cared that much about her mother leaving that ship. Okay. LVP, MVP. Todd, you're up. Uh. LVP, I'm going to go with the iceberg because I think it looks really bad. It's like the one thing that ages yeah. badly is the iceberg does not look good. Like all the other special effects, I think, look pretty decent. So, and the MVP, I mean, out of respect, I got to go with Celine Dion because that song meant a lot to my childhood. And, oh, man. Uh... <laughs> There's still pictures of Todd lip syncing that song. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, <coughs> out of respect. Canada's own uh, Celine Dion MVP, and she rocks the hell out of that song. Like that's one of the best movie songs of all time. AFI agrees. That's what I was gonna say. All right, I'll go next. So my my MVP, I'm gonna go MVP first. My MVP is James Horner, um, because he he puts together another brilliant score that accompanies this, and I. I, I remember hearing a story about how they didn't want to really like involve the song at all in the movie. Um, and then they heard the song and then Horner like used it as the theme to the movie. And, uh, and, and it works just brilliantly in everything he does at the same time. I've always kind of thought that the score to Titanic is in some ways a ripoff of the score to Apollo 13. Like there are some very definite similarities and themes that are that go in both of them. So my LVP is uh, is the Oscars for uh, for doing such an obvious makeup win for James Horner for Titanic since he didn't win for Apollo 13. Um, my my other LVP is the buoyancy of doors, but that I I, I like the Oscars better for LVP. Yeah, James Horner's scores are always a bit repetitive. Like you can always they, hear the da 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 da, and, and it's uh, okay because they're brilliant. They're they're always brilliant. And they always work perfectly. R.I.P. James Horner. All right, Zach. All right, my MVP and LVP is the same person. It is James Cameron, the writer, <laughs> director, editor, and actor who played Jack's uh, arm in the sketch scene, Terry's yes. favorite scene. So obviously James Horner uh, has quite a bit of an ego. He said, Cameron's Cameron. Uh, yep. So, but James Horner does too. 
don't know what my issues with names today. Some good, some good water you got there. Um, James Cameron alcohol content in the water. Wait, hey, could we go with James Cameron for biggest stick man in the movie? I mean, he was banging Linda Hamilton, and then he dated Rose's granddaughter, and they got married, and I think they're still, yeah, yeah. There we go. Anyway, um, James Cameron, yeah, great storyteller, uh, greatest. Second greatest truck driver turned international celebrity after my own relative, who I'm going to drop, uh, my Uncle Jerry, Pulitzer Prize winning art critic. Um, and so uh, the reason why he's LVP is, listen, okay, have you guys seen the alternate ending to this movie on YouTube? Yes. Have we talked about this? Okay. I think, I, I'm I think the we, one that we told talked you about, about it. For a while. Are, really? Okay. That's interesting. All right. So yeah, you didn't know it existed until I mentioned it one time. It was an internet hoax for a long time. Uh, until YouTube. We can thank YouTube for this. But yes, there is an alternate ending to Titanic. Do you know what I'm talking about, Todd? Have you watched it? No. Okay, so the alternate ending, you got to watch it. The alternate ending, how should we describe it, Terry? It go, all it, all it, you need to know is that is that um, what's his name? Uh, Louis ha- Bodine yeah. gets the final word of the movie. Look what you did, late. That wasn't cool, lady. He says something like that as, as she hurls the heart of the ocean into the sea. And then um she proceeds to tell us that the lesson of the movie was to live every day to its fullest which is a line that jack says and then bill paxton starts laughing maniacally like uh nicholas cage in legend of the sorcerer or whatever movie that that he did where he laughs and um then he says shall we dance uh to rose's granddaughter and it's a catastrophic ending to a beautiful movie and so I give James Cameron the LVP because in most cases you, you praise a director for keeping an unwanted scene out of the final cut. But the fact that he had the vision to film that and then to edit it, because it looks like color corrected, it's got the music in it, it's got everything. Like he wasted time putting that piece of garbage together. So I don't know whether to praise James Cameron for knowing to, that it was horrible or for, to, to criticize him for ever having it in there in the first place because is a horrible ending that would have ruined an otherwise nearly perfect movie. Well, he's also the editor, right? So he knows, yeah. he knows what he's doing. <clears throat> I guess so. But that ending is, I mean, it is like, it's almost like you're watching an SNL parody of Titanic. It's, it's uncanny is, is how bad it is. Legend of the Sorcerer. What's the movie he does where it did the kind of Spock like shot that where he's laughing maniacally and it, it, it Todd knows right he's it, he's he's been on the cager. Who? He said Nicolas Cage in the movie Legend of the Sorcerer where he laughs. Isn't there some movie where he laughs maniacally at the at the heavens and then the camera does like a three sixty rotation of a bird's eye view shot? Maybe it was Bangkok Dangerous. I don't know. I'm I'm getting fired. <laughs> I mean, there is a sorcerer movie that he did, but I don't think it was in that. I don't know. I'll uh, take your word for it. All right. It's time for quote of the day. I'm gonna go first. Um I'm gonna quote uh I'm gonna quote Adam's rib. And I think this is a pretty great quote. I, I heard it and I'm like, that's my quote of the day. And it's just a random aside quote that two random characters are they're they're talking and one of them says to the other one, I think the human race is having a nervous breakdown. And I just think that I just thought that was such a great quote and describes a lot. So that's my quote. Todd, what do you got? 
Uh, so there's a quote that Molly Brown says that reminded me of a quote in Boiler Room, so I'm going to do both of them. <laughs> she says, um, they all love money, so just act like you own a gold mine and you're in the club, which the first thing I thought of was like, oh, that's sort of like Ben Affleck's uh, speech in Boiler Room where he says, you got to act as if you're the president of this firm. Act as if you got a nine-inch cock. You got to act as if. And that's pretty much what Kathy Bates should have said uh, when they were walking into that party. That was the Molly Brown version of that quote. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, Zach, bring us home. All right. Uh, my, my quote is a, a serious quote from uh, Old Rose who says, uh, a woman's heart is an ocean of secrets, but now you know there was a man named Jack Dawson and he saved me in every way a person can be saved. I've always liked that line in that movie, probably more than any other line, because, I mean, she's right. He saved her literally and metaphorically. Is it better that she survived? Hey, what about a sequel where we actually find out her, who uh, her husband is that she marries in apparently Grand Rapids, Michigan or whatever? Like, that's sort of a depressing sequel, I guess. But I also forgot to say my real MVP of the movie is Sven, because this was a point I wanted to make earlier when Terry brought up Sven. Sven has a hell of a story he can tell the rest of his life. He's the real winner of this movie. Yes, I agree. I agree. That's a good call. Uh, I say, uh, I, I think um, Rose marries uh, Dr. James Spaulding, which is the guy who uh, Helen Hunt marries in Castaway. Nice. I like it. There yeah. we go. All right. With that, we're going to end on that note. <laughs> it's time to bring our podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back at you next week with another episode of talking movies until then have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.